Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. So, in the last few episodes, we've been talking a lot about war. I did an episode with Warren where we talked, or two episodes where we talked about Machiavelli and particularly Machiavelli's opinions on how war works and, and why princes should study war. And uh, we also did a couple episodes at the beginning with uh, William about about Clausewitz. And this got me thinking, well, what is the thing that everybody at Dissident Right, National Socialist, whatever you want to call it, gatherings, likes to talk about? And the eternal conversation is, it's fall 1941, do you attack Moscow or do you attack Ukraine? Because believe it or not, everybody is autistic about this. And well, not not everybody, but a lot of people are very interested in, in this. Uh, the questions of like replaying, it's like a almost like a hobby of ours, just endlessly replaying World War II and like, what would you have done? What should what should Hitler have done? What should the generals have done? Was Hitler right? Was, were the generals right? Uh, and this is even just beyond us. I think even normies talk about this. I mean, I know in you know my over the years, I've met a lot of uh, military guys, ex-military guys, and it's a common thing as well with them. You, no matter what their politics are, is a lot of them like to talk about this stuff. So I thought it would be a lot of fun to do an episode where we cover the question of Moscow versus Ukraine 1941, but broadly speaking, uh, cover the life and career of Heinz Guderian, the uh famous panzer commander of the third reich now i read guderian uh guderian's book panzer leader about 10 or 12 years ago and i brushed up up on it a little bit this week but uh it is a it's an interesting book and what i like about guderian is that he is eminently opinionated he's just petty about everything uh which is good and bad i mean from a historical point of view probably not so good but it's at least funny and it makes him interesting to read and interesting to talk about. So for today's show, I'm here with Hans, and we he's also very, actually he's better well read on this stuff than I am about uh, tank warfare and about the, the Russian campaign, the French and the Polish campaigns. And uh, we want to make some comparisons with, uh, with Guderian and with other leaders of the time. So Hans, Generally speaking, actually, could you just give us a rundown to start off with on Guderian and his life and his background? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, happy to be here, of course. Uh, first time guest on uh, on Greg's show. Um, happy to have so, you. So yeah, Guderian. Um, Guderian starts out as like a. Well, he was like a Junker. He was from from the Baltic, right? No, no, he was from uh, the Vaterland, which is. Uh, basically an area of, of West Prussia um, that fell under Polish control after World War One. Um, oh, so that area right around Danzig. Yeah, sort of like to the southwest of that. Okay. Uh, sort of close to the, the interwar German border. Um, but I, I suppose in a way similar experience to some of the, the Baltic Germans, you know, living among um, a decent number of foreigners, of, of Slavs, um, and having that very... East German, uh, uh, Prussian temperament to them. Right. They, just to throw a little bit of history in here, or a little farther ancient history, that whole area, I guess, that sort of northern Polish coast uh, was 
was where the original Prussians were from, the non the Baltic Prussians, because before the Germans pushed into that area in with the Teutonic Knights and the uh, the Wendish Crusade, that area was uh, a people who spoke a language related to what's now Lithuanian and Latvian called Prussian. And then they were Germanized over the centuries. So maybe that was his ancestry. I don't know, or his deep ancestry. Yeah, I think that area in particular would have been outside the the old Prussian territory, though. Uh, it would have been more more Slavic, more Polish than than actually Baltic, uh, okay. ethnically. Um, but anyways, he, he, you know, being one of these East German uh, Junker types, uh, you know, he does the thing that, that they all do, and he goes into the military. Um, and he's he's some type of, of ensign officer, um in the 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 last years of uh of imperial germany and right then, so he, he was in what he he was a cadet in circa 1910 he was basically the same generation as rommel and hitler because he was born in uh 1888 so yeah basically um so so he was a, a low-ranking uh officer in the beginning um sort of i guess equivalent to like a second lieutenant uh for us today um and he's one of the guys that is kept on in the uh, the much diminished uh, Reichswehr after World War One. You know, as a result of the the Treaty of Versailles, Germany is limited to a one hundred thousand man army, which is basically the minimum that they need to just guard their borders and keep some kind of lid on their considerable internal dissent. Um, and well, well, I mean, we we, we ought to. Well, I need to do a whole episode, probably with Warren about the Versailles Treaty and all of that. But yeah, probably hundred thousand men probably wasn't even enough to maintain uh, control of Germany at the time. Because I mean, just broadly speaking, there were private militias, uh, the Fry Fry Corps organizations, and communist groups, and all kinds of crazy stuff. But so Guderian's uh, one of the few guys who was retained in the officer corps of the Prussian army or the German army. Quite right, yeah. Um, although, actually, I think it's it's quite possible that, that limiting the size of the army actually made it more stable because the army itself was not entirely loyal to the republic, as you know, as we see later on um, with Based. like the the cop putsch and some of the goings on in Bavaria and all that all that sort of stuff. But uh, so yeah, what what did what was his career in the uh, the Weimar era army like? So I, I believe he was with like the general staff in some capacity for a while, although not uh, not really trained so much as a staff officer. Um, at some point, he winds up in uh, a, a light infantry uh, battalion, um, which is actually the same one that uh, that Rommel was in for a while, which is kind of an interesting similarity. Some of some of these. Uh, good panzer commanders start off as as light infantry leaders. yeah okay light infantry is where you don't have vehicles right light infantry being light on mostly like artillery and oh, pack okay. equipment so, so i'm thinking like like ancient times light infantry means people with like javelins and no armor and heavy infantry means armor but nowadays or nowadays it means light infantry is you walk everywhere and and uh then there's mech versus mechanized right so what did what did it mean then so so back then it's it's mostly in reference to uh the amount of basically horse-drawn equipment because that's what really slows you down uh -huh. like your your infantry can actually march faster uh or i suppose to say they're not the limiting factor in the speed 
that you with which you can move. Right, it's all the shit you got to bring with. Exactly. So the light infantry are light on uh, accoutrements. They're light on having to haul around a bunch of other crap, which means they don't have you know a lot of staying power in a stand up knockdown fight. Uh, but they're built more for recon, exploitation, uh, screening other forces. Uh, they're basically skirmishers. Um, but because light infantry are light on stuff like artillery and support equipment and and all the rest, uh, they have to have a very mobile and aggressive uh, uh, spirit, which I think was helpful towards their understanding of armored warfare was that aggression and movement counted for more than than um, than weight of firepower. Okay. And so uh, before, yeah, let's talk a little bit about armored warfare here because you think about 1914, right? You've got all the major armies of Europe going up against each other in 1914. And basically it was the same arms that you had in the Napoleonic conflicts. It was infantry cavalry on horses and artillery and then air was starting to be introduced but they didn't have tanks and tanks were invented by the british to try to break up uh break up the trench warfare and so tanks were used a little bit toward the end of world war one but a lot of the people after the war started thinking well maybe tanks are just like a a novelty right and and they sort of were in in the way that they were employed um you know, to break up, or not even really to break up, but just to to provide some kind of attacking power in the positional battles that developed on the Western Front. Um, really, almost as a counter to the machine gun more than anything. Right, that makes um, sense. Because they could still be destroyed quite easily by artillery. And in fact, most of the tanks that were destroyed uh, in action uh, were not destroyed by like anti-tank weapons. You know, the Germans had a few in like 1917, 1918, uh, ludicrously oversized. Yeah, I've, I've seen. I've been light. to. I, you know, there's a museum in uh, Chicago or the Chicago area. It's called the uh, Cantini Museum. I don't know if you've ever, ever been to that. It's a. It was put together by an American uh, World War One veteran and and just rich guy, and he has a bunch of tanks out in the park. But he's got a little military museum. They've got a bunch of stuff in it, like like you're talking about these ludicrously oversized rifles yeah the, the they're just the anti-tank guns it's it's literally a uh a mauser 98 that's just like scaled up and it fires like some kind of uh, like 12 millimeter projectile and it like, like dislocates a, your a shoulder when you bullet. shoot it oh yeah you can't i mean you know it it has to be shot from a position like you cannot you cannot shoulder the thing it's too heavy to to lift it's like you know 30 pounds and it's all in the front so um but yeah, most of so most of the tanks that were knocked out were knocked out by artillery fire because they were being employed in these positional battles where, um, you know, like for every uh, I, I forget, there's some figure that Guderian cites in in his book, uh, you know, which which we'll come back to later. But where in World War One, like for every uh, uh, unit of distance on the front, kilometer or mile, they had. X number of heavy artillery pieces. In World War II, it was like a tenth of that. Like mm -hmm. artillery fighting was not was not employed in the same way. Uh, so the tanks in World War One were mostly getting lost to that. And I'm thinking like like high projectile fire. Like they just oh, yeah. they see like yeah. oh tanks are coming. Like call an artillery strike and just like <laughs> exactly. And the tanks were so slow 
frankly, and also because of the way that they were employed, uh, they were advancing with the infantry, so they could only realistically move as fast as the infantry. Um, they just became easy targets for heavy artillery barrages, and many of them were lost that way. Right. Okay. So, and then in the po- in the the post war environment, how did that? What was the the? Because everyone after World War One was thinking, all right, well, you know, we might have another general European war. What's right. it going to look like this time, and how can we get the edge on our enemies? So it's interesting because this does start happening as early as the the later parts of World War One, but theorists are sort of expanding on it later on. Is they were recognizing exactly what I've just mentioned that the tanks were being taken out uh, because they were they were being used as infantry support. They had to keep pace with the infantry. Um, they were being employed just sort of alongside the existing paradigm of infantry advancing closely behind their own artillery barrages. Uh, and some theorists recognize that the advantages of the tanks were being squandered, uh, mostly like Basil Little Hart, um, uh, some the, of the other guys, uh, the, the 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 French guy. What was uh, his name? De Gaulle, was it De Gaulle? It wasn't De Gaulle. It was like his predecessor. Okay. Uh, you know, Little Hart, I know fairly well. I mean, he wrote a ton of books. If you go to a used bookstore and look in certain sections, you'll still find tons of his books. Actually, the first book I ever read was. Uh, uh, the first real big boy book I ever read was Basil Littlehart's uh, Sibio Africanus book. Uh, yeah. Um, there was also uh, J.F.C. Fuller. Oh, right. was another British theorist. Uh-huh. Um, and these guys started advocating for uh, essentially an independent tank force uh, that would operate on its own, force a breach into the enemy lines, and then get into the rear areas, start attacking logistics, communications, basically causing havoc and preventing the enemy from reforming a defensive line. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, again, was the experience they had in World War One. of even when they used these tanks to make a breakthrough, uh, by the time all of the other uh, uh, forces had caught up, uh, the Germans had simply dug a new defensive line and they had to do it all over again. Yeah. And, and so they ran out of steam very quickly. Um, so for that purpose, they started advocating... Uh, grouping all the tanks together, uh, including mobile artillery and infantry along with them um, to operate in the gap that was created by the tanks. And for that purpose, having uh, uh, independent operational command of this arm of the military separate from what the infantry and the artillery were doing. It's kind of, this is bringing back uh, some basic stuff. I, you know, I when I think about this stuff, I, I often kind of go back on the uh, the nine principles of war that you are taught in the that the U.S. military teaches, and these are it's it's I find it's it's like useful to, to talk about this stuff using the nine principles of war, which are mass maneuver, objective, offensive, unity of command, economy of force, surprise, speed, and simplicity. No, su- su- ooh, screwed that up. Surprise security and simplicity speed is the same thing as uh, maneuverability so you're getting uh with with world war one you have like no 
there's offensive is sort of not there. I mean, they're trying, they're using the tanks to try to get offensive, get, get that principle like worked in and then also get in maneuverability because there's just no maneuver right without tanks and without being able to get into the enemy's rear areas. And like what you're saying with uh, getting into rear areas and messing up their communications and messing up their supplies, it's like getting at unity of command a little bit. You can, if you can break up the enemy's unity of command because they're confused and they're trying to figure out well geez they're attacking here and we need to reorder our our troops and like oh they they attacked on the border between two divisions or something well that's right, very confusing right. and hard to coordinate because you and that's something they would often units. try to do they would they would aim for those uh those those command junctions um yeah either between two divisions or between two armies or or what have you and that was something they especially tried to do during world war one because that was sometimes the only way that you could get the enemy to make a mistake uh is if you attacked along those those divisions right all right so so what was guderian's uh and and what were the germans you mentioned so you mentioned the british and they were thinking all right well we want to have independent command uh we want to have independent tank units operating basically separately from the regular infantry units how were the germans looking at this so According to Guderian, uh, he basically says he's he's sort of borrowing wholesale from these other theorists. Um, he doesn't really even even present the argument that he's doing something original. Uh, in, in surprisingly modest of him, given his the rest of his yeah, works. Yeah, surprisingly so. Um, and basically, the the German army high command. Uh, is is very conservative, as were most of the the army high commands at this time. Um, they were sort of generally uninterested in in the theories, um, which again is some somewhat universal. Uh, the the British and the French both also failed to adopt any of these recommendations. Uh, Guderian presents himself as basically the only guy in. The, the German military who was really pushing for this. Mm. I'm not sure how how much that is true, but he was certainly a key player in getting these theories adopted and, and pushing them through. Um, and in in his work, uh, you know, with the staff, the German general staff, and as a, a sort of unit commander, um, he is pushing for this stuff in exercises. Uh, He's he's basically getting his guys to make like wood and canvas mock-ups of tanks. Oh right, because they're not according to Versailles, they weren't allowed to have tanks. Right, correct. Um, and they also didn't have any capacity to to really build them, anyways. Even if they had wanted to to conduct it in secret or something. Um, so he has his guys, you know, basically walking around in a field, you know, holding up a, a glorified tent, uh, pretending to be a tank. Right. But, you know, it, it, it works. You have these military exercises, you have rules and referees, and, and you try to keep it as close to realism as possible. And it, it is good for something. It's not just, like, ridiculous. I mean, it, it is somewhat ridiculous, but, no, I, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, better, it's, better to do that. Better to have a rehearsal with, like, a dumb uh, mock-up than just to ignore the problem altogether. Yeah. It's ridiculous to think about, but it, it carried a lot of value in, in getting... Um, getting people to experiment with these theories and try to imagine how they would actually work in practice. Uh, and he's actually told a couple of times by senior officers to basically stop doing this uh, in exercises. They don't want him to, to be, um, you know, coming out with these panzer divisions. Uh, they want him to 
basically keep it to like battalion size or lower, which mm-hmm. is what, what their whole theory was at the time, is that a panzer division is too big. We need these forces spread out to assist the infantry. Okay, so they're not even cracking down on him for like big picture diplomatic political reasons. They're doing it for just... They think it's a stupid idea, uh-huh. basically. They think the panzer division is a bad idea. Uh, the tanks are needed for other purposes. Uh, they don't want to be creating this like third arm of, of or fourth arm of the army. Um, and especially like the cavalry are kind of upset, uh, you know, because they want they want to keep this uh, sort of exploitation role that Guderian is trying to take for his panzer divisions. Right. Uh, they're getting upset with him, which Guderian is in turn. He's upset about it because the cavalry had previously said, no, that's fine. They can do that because we just want to be we want to focus on the reconnaissance role. And he was like, OK, well, I right. want to do breakthroughs. So that's fine. And then they changed their minds. Um, yeah, how did those breakthroughs work out in World War One for you there? Well, I mean, sometimes they did, not on the Western I mean, didn't, Front. Didn't, didn't the British but... have like like a million cavalrymen just cooling their heels for most of the war? I have no idea about like, that. I mean, just sitting around waiting for that, waiting for that magical breakthrough that was going to be like uh, I don't know, like a Napoleonic cavalry charge, and where the war would be gloriously won, but it just never happened. I wouldn't doubt it. I guess they'd have to have a place for all the cowardly aristocrats to, you know, to sit around and play polo. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so Guderian, and this is one of the themes of his book, is that he's constantly like at war with his superiors over getting these ideas accepted and getting uh, uh, real panzer formations uh, in the field and under some kind of independent operational control, which they don't want to allow him. Yeah. So, I mean, like they're the, the, conver- the conservative position to my mind, I'd criticize it because I would say, well, look, it's you're by distributing all the tanks among the infantry, you are in a way, well, you're, you're sacrificing offensive for one thing. Uh, you're not, and you're set in mass is the main thing you're sacrificing mass because you're not concentrating your your strongest attacking power in one spot you're spreading it out so it, it sort of stands to reason that you would follow Guderian and, and concentrate it right and that's that's exactly what he was saying was it was it was all about uh, mass and speed and coordination between what he considered to be uh, the most powerful offensive force that they had at their disposal. And of course, the you know the conservatives on the high command were saying, "Well, this is sort of untested. Uh, you know, we believe in our infantry. We think that they can can have a decisive impact on the course of the battle." Um, and they were focused on using the tanks as a way to supplement the the tactical ability of the infantry to win battles. So, what else were the Germans doing in the war? I mean, I know I know vaguely they were doing things like, or not in the war, but between the wars, they were doing. Uh, they were doing maneuvers with mock-up tanks. They were also training in Russia. Yes. And I think Sweden. Yeah, Guderian talks about this in a couple of places. Um, he mentions that uh, he, he mentions the training in Sweden, uh, which is actually kind of kind of interesting. It was it was using tanks that the Germans actually had in like 1918, uh, but never were actually able to deploy. Uh huh. Um, which is kind of cool. I didn't. I didn't know. They about like this they before. sold. They what sold their surplus to Sweden. They sold the. They sold. Uh, you know, quote unquote parts kits. Uh-huh. Uh, to Sweden. Oh, like AR fifteen parts. <laughs> yeah, almost, almost similar in, in a way. Uh, they yeah they sold you know parts kits to Sweden. 
whereupon they were immediately reassembled into fully functional uh, armored vehicles. There were like 20-some of them. And, uh, you know, it, it was sort of a, a quid pro quo. Uh, the Swedes then got access to these and were able to start building their own armored vehicles, uh, a lot of which they sold on the export market. Typical. And, and uh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, with the Swedes, I, I mean, this is kind of weird. I mean, the Swedes thinking about having a war with Norway or something, or, I mean, I guess Sweden's uh, always, I mean, no. they haven't had a real war since what, 1815? Well, they, they were looking at the Soviets, ah. really. Um, and, you know, I think there is a possible version of events where they do come into the war against the Soviets, either if huh. they keep pushing into Finland or, you know, things go slightly better for Germany or the diplomatic situation is slightly changed. Um, yeah, it's something you don't think about a lot. I mean, it's funny with Sweden, I I remember reading uh, in a biography of Goering that after World War One, he was, Goering was sort of the, the airplane version of uh, Guderian because he was pushing for more airplanes because that's what he did in World War One. He was, he was an right, air, air force right. fighter and he joined, after the war, he became a civilian pilot and went to Sweden and helped build up their civilian airline and you know civilian airline at first was basically flying aristocrats around to their castles uh and so that's what he was doing and uh that's how he met his his wife right yeah that he stole from some swedish aristocrat <laughs> and who was like 10 years older than him which is kind of based, funny I don't uh, know. Kar karen wasn't it yeah, yeah it was karen, karen. Yeah. yeah um anyway sorry digression on sweden but go on yeah it, it was also very similar to like what um like ryan Mattal was doing in switzerland where they like bought out a, a subsidiary and started building machine guns and artillery there because uh, they weren't allowed to under versailles so basically all these europeans were just trying to cheat and get around the rules and make money making weapons yeah all a lot of the neutral countries were very pro-german uh, especially sweden and, and switzerland and they allowed a lot of stuff to go on uh but perhaps the the funnier one is um, Guderian in his book recounts that German tank training was taking place, uh, uh, that they opened a facility in a foreign country in 1926, uh, which is unmistakably a reference to the Soviet Union, but he doesn't say it because at this point, this is when he's writing this book, it's the 1950s. Oh, this is Pan Panzer Leader, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When he's writing this book, it's in the 1950s. I guess, yeah, we didn't say the name of the book. It's Panzer Leader. It's Heinz Guderian's autobiography. Um, I wouldn't even, it's more than an autobiography. It's like a, it's like an autobiographical screed against everyone that ever like doubted him. Well, I guess we'll, we'll get to more of that. Um, but it's, it's very funny how he pointedly avoids saying that this was in the Soviet union because he's trying to appeal to a Western audience and get them to help, uh, uh Germany against, you know, the, the Soviet occupation basically okay. and, and get get better terms so basically the germans could go train in sweet in uh not sweden the soviet union and yes. yeah use what real tanks yeah they were they were using their own um uh kind of secret uh prototype models at that point uh i don't know if the soviets were giving them stuff to train with i, I think it was just german prototypes they had like the vk series um and some other very early prototypes that never actually saw combat it's funny because this the all all of this between the wars stuff that Germany was doing is very much like what they were doing in 1813 with um, after when 
or sorry, between 1806 and 1813, when they were thrashed by when the Prussians were thrashed by Napoleon, they were forbidden to have an army over, I think it was 60,000. And a lot of their officers went to Russia, like Clausewitz went to Russia. Right, and, right. So it's, I'm sure that's exactly what they were thinking. It was like, well, we're just going to do what we did back in, uh, you know, the, the down years of the Napoleonic Wars. And it kind of worked out for them the second time as well. Yeah, it kind of worked, except that, you know, they sort of inadvertently also gave the Soviets a very good idea of what they were doing. And uh, you can honestly credit this with, with uh, you know, the increased effectiveness of the Soviet tank arm in comparison to the Western allies early on, uh, if not in, in terms of, of tactics. Oftentimes the Soviets lost a lot of tanks, uh, but at least in the operational employment, the Soviets actually were kind of catching up to the Germans, uh, even at the, even in 1941. Was the main, uh, the main Soviet theorist, or a couple of them, was uh, Zhukov was a big tank proponent, was he not? Mm-hmm. And then uh, Voroshilov was the other one? Yeah, 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 Clement Voroshilov. Uh, I don't know much about them, about their personal lives, but they were they were pretty influential. Uh, like the, the KV series of tanks is named after Voroshilov. Oh, okay, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Was it Voroshilov was purged, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, he was, I, but I believe not until 41. I think he was purged in in response to some military failure or another think possibly related to the southern front in, in ukraine i i don't remember exactly you know, we mentioned you know mentioning the soviet like tank thing um there's this old russian movie called uh i think it's called tractoristi tractorists tractor uh-huh. drivers and it's about tractor drivers who then become tank drivers yeah and the same they, skill set yeah. right <laughs> it's a very soviet a very like russian way to look at it well tractor is like tank farmer becomes soldier yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, for all their failures uh, in, in 41, the Soviets, you know, again, partially due to, well, in great part due to all the, the purging of officers, uh, they did actually have independent tank corps. It, those tank corps were more like the size of divisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was that was far ahead of what the, the Western allies had done. They didn't have independent tank divisions really at all. I mean, the French kind of did, but how many, they weren't employed well. How many tanks are in a division at this time about? Oh, uh, it depends. Uh, oftentimes somewhere around 600, I think. Okay. I think that's like a, a good ballpark figure. Someone's going to call me out on that. But... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, I I don't know a lot about tanks. I mean, I, I, I knew this guy was a tank officer in the Gulf War, and he would always talk about... Uh, tell his like hilarious war stories about how easy and how much how much fun he had doing that but oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i can believe but it. it's basically it's four tanks in a platoon usually and then you know scales up from there i think it's it's way smaller now than it used to be uh-huh um yeah i think just because of the the greater expense and sophistication of the vehicles uh also just because of of air power and precision munitions like you don't really want to be moving like a hundred tanks in an echelon formation across like an open field. You want to keep the units smaller now, which is in keeping with the, the general uh, sort of shrinking of all combat formations in uh, in a modern military. Mm-hmm. So, so 1926, they're training in, in the Soviet Union. And how how did that like fight play out between Guderian and the conservatives in the uh, the German general staff and the high command? From the way that he recounts it, it's sort of 
he's just he's just uh, winning incrementally. Like first he gets them to agree to. Uh, you know, to this training stuff, and then eventually he gets them to agree to, uh, you know, independent formations. He eventually gets them to agree to division size formations. Uh, there's some back and forth over like how many trucks he's gonna get, uh, and there's there's like a battle over the his superiors want to use the trucks to motorize like the field artillery, mm-hmm. uh, which had been horse drawn up to that point. And Guderian is like, well, I want those trucks to, you know, to get these Panzer divisions up to strength. Uh, and, like, they compromise, they motorize the field artillery, and he gets trucks from somewhere else. So he's just, he's fighting this constant battle with the superiors over, like, every little tidbit, every every little wedge issue, uh, just to get to get these divisions to where he wants them. And he's com- he complains endlessly about like every little reversal that he gets. Like anytime something doesn't go his way, um, right? He's he's a champion complainer. Now this, which this frankly is... makes him like a good, uh, uh, made him a good officer in this way because he never stopped complaining until people just would rather give him what he wanted than deal with him anymore. <laughs> well, this all, all all the what you're saying. I mean, this runs contrary to I guess the commonly accepted or the popular understanding of the German army in uh, early World War II, which I think is broadly that the Germans were super advanced on tanks and they were super forward thinking about everything. Um, But you read Guderian, you read other guys like Manstein, and you see that it really wasn't as uh, clear cut of a a thing. Uh, It might have turned out, I mean, if the conservative elements had won, you would have ended up with a German army that was fighting the same way that the Western allies were. Absolutely. And th- that could have gone very, very badly for them because it would have turned into the same World War One type positional battle uh, that maybe Germany would nevertheless have been slightly better equipped for because they were also training their infantry very effectively, uh, you know, to be aggressive, to employ like mission tactics. There were, there were other innovations besides the tanks. And I think... Uh, I think Manstein and Guderian don't necessarily see that because they were very narrowly focused on on the tank arm. Guderian more so, um, but it was it absolutely was a big deal that yeah really the forward thinking uh, element on armored warfare was just a few a few very vocal officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the high command was not not enthusiastic even when they ultimately acquiesced they were not enthusiastic was there any like similar development going on in america at the time uh not really uh there was uh there was one guy whose name i cannot recall who was doing some early experiments um and there was an exercise later on but i mean we're talking like the late 30s before america even really takes interest uh at all and the early tank designs that we were coming out with were were obsolete when, when they were designed. Yeah. I mean, it was, what, it was what we were giving to the Russians in Lend-Lease, and they were just basically death traps from what I've read. Yeah, even a lot of that stuff, like the stuff we were shipping to Russia, was like effectively stopgap designs that we came up with in like 1940. Uh, the Like the M3 Lee tank mm-hmm. was honestly not a, a bad tank. Uh, looks very stupid, but was, was combat effective. And that was just something that we slapped together, I assume, also based on, like, uh, British advisors, probably, who had already been working on tanks for a while. What was, uh, 
so what was the sort of tank force that Germany entered World War II with? What did it look like in terms of like the what types of tanks were they using? Okay, so Guderian talks a bit about this. Um, he says that the the plan was to because they weren't they weren't coming into it with the King Tiger tanks. Oh no, no. I mean their their tanks were were honestly uh, markedly inferior to their opponents in in most respects in terms of armor and armament. Uh, where they were generally superior was in uh, communications equipment, sometimes optics. Although Guderian seems to think that the uh, the, the rollout of the better optics had been delayed uh, and were not available for France. Um, That's two things you don't really think about when you think about tanks. Uh, most people think about gun armor movement, but if you if you're going to being able to communicate and being able to see are like yeah. the two yep. just super important things. And it's it's usually the case that like you know outside of a very lopsided matchup like you know a, a Panzer one against a T thirty four you know it doesn't matter the T thirty four wins because uh, the Panzer one is just armed with a machine gun you know. Uh, but the, pan, but, the Panzer ones and twos were both machine guns, right? Not they the, had no main gun. The twos had like an auto cannon, it, okay. not what you'd really think of as a main gun, um, but could be effective against lighter tanks or, or other lightly armored vehicles. Um, but yeah, like uh, optics are a big deal because typically the way that a tank fight goes is that the winner is the one who sees the other guy first. Mm-hmm. That's that's generally how things went, especially on the Eastern Front. Uh, once the more powerful guns rolled out. Um, and that, of course, led later on to developments in the, the sort of main battle tank theory where uh, heavy tanks fell out of favor because it was recognized that someone was always going to invent the better can opener and that the better way was to be fast enough and and agile enough and see your enemy uh, and be able to engage them before they could engage you. But I'm digressing off the point. So the, the German forces... Uh, really were not where they wanted to be in terms of the equipment of the Panzer troops. They had uh, wanted to have Panzer 3s and 4s. The 3s were supposed to uh, to engage enemy tanks. The 4s were supposed to engage uh, uh, other targets, fortifications, infantry, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and the four, were the 4s like bigger and stronger? The 4s were larger and they were armed with a, like a shorter barreled 75mm gun, which is basically... Uh, the the purpose of that is that it's it's throwing a larger shell at a lower velocity, and that shell has a lot of high explosive filler. Uh huh. And so you can you can blow stuff up with it. Cool. Uh, <laughs> the the Panzer three has a uh, uh, narrower diameter. It was like a, I think at the beginning it was a thirty seven millimeter, uh-huh. and they later upgraded it to a fifty. But high velocity armor piercing shell. Um, and that's that's really typically how you kill other tanks. Is you're not going for uh, diameter of the shell as much as you are for velocity to punch through armor. Right, makes sense. Um, so that was their plan. And but, would would they have these mixed up in like the same unit? Like, would you have a platoon yeah, with these, like two uh, a Panzer four and like three Panzer threes or something? Yeah, these would all be employed together. It wasn't like you'd have separate formations of of tank killers and infantry killers mm-hmm. you were just you were employing them in conjunction with each other so they could deal with any uh any possible threat um and of course both had like two machine guns also for infantry typically now in the event they were stuck with a lot of like older panzer twos uh and even i think some panzer ones which were like 
just training tanks. Yeah. But I guess they figured better than nothing. Uh, also, a lot of captured Czech equipment, the, the Czech uh, uh, 35 and 38 pattern tanks, um, which were, I mean, most of this stuff could not successfully engage like the heavier British and French tanks, the the Charbys and the the Matildas. Okay. Um, so why did the why did the Germans have the advantage? Why did they win in 1940? I mean, I I what I'll tell you what I know. I know that so in 19 you know in, in the invasion of France, the initial plan and Guderian talks about this a lot in in, uh, in Panzer Leader. The initial plan was to just rerun the Schlieffen plan. It was like, all right, we're going to crash through Belgium. We're going to do right flank. We're going to wrap them up around Sedan and then annihilate them just like we intended to do in 1914 and it's going to be great and they're never going to see it coming. Unfortunately, a copy is a semi-famous story, I think. A copy of this whole plan was in an airplane and that got down behind enemy lines and the German high command, Hitler, everybody didn't know if that plan had fallen into enemy hands and they had to assume that it did. So Manstein, or no, I think it was Guderian went to Manstein and they talked and Manstein said, well, I've got an alternate plan. Right. And my alternate plan is that we just jam a massive armored force right through the Ardennes forest in the, you know, Southern Belgium, Luxembourg area, cross the, the Meuse river, and then try to cut off the whole left part. If you think of the French and the British army facing West, the left part is the Northern part. Uh, we cut off the whole left side of their army by doing a, a panzer drive through the Ardennes and then up toward the channel ports. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and what they were relying on for that plan was basically to, as we've said before, have operational command over a uh, a, a massed armored armored fist, basically, uh, to to pull that off. And uh, this is basically how they got their way, and also like answer to, to to answer the question of how they won. You know, despite having inferior equipment, it's because they had they had basically gotten their way at this point with with this theory of the mass employment of armor and the the French and British, despite having often better tanks, uh, a better air power, and more of them, were not operating in that way. Uh, they were very hesitant. They were very committed to. Uh, uh, clearly defined battle plans, uh, whereas the Germans. Okay, so let, let me let me back up. Basically, Manstein with this plan goes to high command um, and goes to Hitler with it. And there was some complicated political intrigue uh, that you know we don't really have to get into. But but basically, I'm sure it was funny, and I'm sure it was a real pain in the ass for the for them at the time. Yeah, yeah, they they think it's you know Manstein thinks it's really interesting. I I somewhat disagree, uh, but basically the end result being that Hitler gives the green light. Uh, the staff says okay, like yeah, we'll we'll go for it. And there's some more bickering after that about the exact details of the plan and like you know specific i mean uh, what's really interesting to me about this is you've got a bunch of guys in the general staff sitting around and like once they accept that plan they've got to figure out and people people don't think about this but if you've ever like had to plan something in detail it's really interesting like imagine trying to figure out how you're going to jam thousands i guess thousands of tanks and tens of thousands of men through narrow roads in a forest that are undeveloped 
keep supplying them with lubricants, gas, food, like everything, and get them to like sneak up on the French and the British. I mean, the forest helps you a little bit because they can't, it's harder for them right, to see you. Right, it makes aerial reconnaissance difficult. But you're still having to like move this huge amount of men and equipment through this, like basically through West Virginia and like cross a river and then like cut their army up. Well, and you know what the funny part about that is, is Manstein and Guderian, uh, seem to share the uh the opinion that like that's that's easy like it doesn't matter like yeah we can do that like we'll we'll have a plan by uh you know by noon tomorrow we've got like, a bunch whatever. of oh, you've got a bunch of autists sitting around at the uh you know at the typewriters and the, yeah, the teletype whatever it's just it's just like not <laughs> pull not, out the maps it's, it's not really viewed as a problem <laughs> they're just like yeah like we can handle it really like let's let's just do it come on no problem quick quick in and out you know five minute adventure yeah so but the Germans had other advantages too. We were talking about earlier uh, before the show about like communication. Well, communication advantages that the Germans had with yeah. their tank forces. Yeah. So, so you know, they had these these like strategic or operational advantages uh, in terms of tactical advantages uh, when it came to you know the battlefield itself. Um, the German tank designers, despite you know lagging a little bit behind the other powers in terms of uh, some of the, the, the technical requirements, uh, like they just hadn't had much experience with actually building tanks, their theory about what made, about, about what a tank battle would require was actually really good. Uh, so the Germans focused heavily on communications equipment. One of the facts that's often uh, uh, bandied about is that the Germans were, uh, were, were very keen on putting radios in as many vehicles as possible. Uh, you know, typically short-range radios in the tanks themselves. They would have dedicated command vehicles with longer-range vehicles, or, or dedicated command vehicles with longer-range radios, and they'd all be kind of tied together in mm -hmm. a, a radio net. Uh, you know, we still do the same thing today. This is like an integral part of, of tactical movement. Um, that enabled them to always be in contact with whoever the relevant party was, either other tanks or their air support or HQ. They were very adaptable to situations as they arose because of that. Um, as mentioned before, uh, their optics were typically better, although early in the war that was less so. They, they got much better as, as time went on. The third thing, and the thing that I think is the most interesting, is that the Germans pioneered uh, the, the three-man turret on their tanks they, they had two men in the hull and three in the turret um that's that's significant for a couple of reasons uh so the tank the tank hull is the, the chassis it's the part that right. the tank that the turret rides on right the part with the tracks yeah and you've got two men so that would be the driver and a machine gunner right you'd, you'd have a driver uh you, like front left or front right and on the other side from him you would have uh, the guy operating the, the frontal machine gun, and he was typically also uh, the radio operator, which was, you know, very helpful to have. Um, now, the, where they where they differed from a lot of the other powers that were building tanks at this point was the the turret had three men as opposed to usually two or sometimes even one, depending mm -hmm. on on the tank. And what that enabled was you had a uh, a loader and a gunner, and the commander. Uh, was was a separate position where on the the smaller turreted tanks like the Soviet T thirty four is a good example, the commander also had to function as the loader, 
which meant that he was not focusing on what was going on around him. He was not focusing on... He was focusing on, like, shit, how do we... Because, I mean, lo- uh, storing ammo in a tank has got to be really difficult. And oh, you've, yeah. only, you've only got a few shells available to you, and you're like, oh, shit, I need to get the armor-piercing shell. I need to get the... I don't know, the phosphorus shell, whatever. And especially out. with larger larger caliber guns, it's also just physically exhausting. Oh, because you got to lift lift a huge shell out. Yeah, and I mean, there's no there's in. no like pneumatic lifting gear like there is in in modern stuff. You have to pick it up and and slide it into the breach by hand. And so, and the gunner is separate because he's got a is he he's aiming the gun. He's just right? aiming and and firing the gun. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um. So that's the way that most of the. Uh, the non-German tanks were was that the commander also had to do something else at the same time, which is violates. Well, I guess it doesn't quite violate unity of command, but it does violate. It's not a principle of war, but like usually the guy in charge, you want just thinking about yeah managing the other people. If he has any other task, it's funny. Like when when I've dealt with managing situations, sometimes I'll have somebody say, "Well, why don't you know? Why don't you just have this guy do this too?" It's like you can't. If a guy's managing four or five other people, he can't be doing a task by himself as well. Exactly. It's just, it's unwise tactically. So the Germans had this advantage in that their tank commanders were focused on on maintaining like peripheral awareness of everything that was going on around them, of directing the other members of the crew, uh, you know, etc. And that just made the German tanks much more agile and more effective on on the battlefield, despite oftentimes uh, inferiority in in armament, they were able to win fights because the other guys were like confused and bogged down and didn't know what was going on. And you could just get around them and and hit them in the flank. Yeah, or, you know. So if you do don't, because if, if you don't, if you don't have a radio on your tank, how do you communicate? Well, so the the, the French uh, and, and they were starting to. Uh, you know, to get more radios in vehicles. So, you know, this is this is kind of like the the Polish cavalry story, which we'll get to later. But the, the French, <laughs> the French, for the most part, were using flags. Uh, so they, they literally, the commander had to stick his his head out of the top of the tank and and wave flags around to communicate to the other members of his squadron. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing that. That's not. I mean, it's just it's not going to work if there's if it's night for one thing yeah it's not going to work if it's raining or foggy it's not going to work if the guy's colorblind it's not going to work if you know you don't want to stick your head out of the tank because you're going to get shot uh, it's also not going to work if the other tank commander is focused on loading the gun and not on looking for your flag signal so we have a, like a compound problem here you know <laughs> oh the french yeah i mean and and that also sort of goes to what their uh what their operational philosophy was like they wanted them these were designed to work with the infantry the idea that they were going to have to coordinate with one another in some sort of rapid like wheeling uh uh, engagement where everyone was moving around did not really occur to them as as a big priority and so they, they weren't thinking about that the germans were thinking about that and and so you know, again, the theme, although often inferior in armament, they were better employed tactically to actually win fights of, rem- of that type. Uh, one of the things Guderian, I vaguely remember mentioning this, is that on the German tanks, they wanted to have a, a special radio like on the outside. So like an infantry, they wanted to have some means for the infantry to talk to the tank commander if they needed to. Oh, like a little phone on the back kind yeah, of thing? Right. Like a... <sighs> 
feel like I've seen that. What's uh? Oh yeah, they show that in like Full Metal Jacket. I uh-huh. think with the the patent tanks. I'm not sure if they ever had something like that. Okay. Um, I suppose it would make sense. I mean, it's plausible. Yeah, but did um? So in the in the 1940 campaign, was there some integration of infantry? Like, because you can't just you can't just throw a bunch of tanks out. And and cut behind enemy lines without some infantry support, right? I mean, you got to have. Oh, yeah, yeah. So how so, did they? How did the Germans solve that problem? So this was was part of the point of the organizational scheme that they wanted to go for uh, with the the Panzer divisions as sort of a, an independent force rather than just battalions. Uh, so each each Panzer division at the start of the war was two. Uh, two battalions of tanks and one of motorized infantry. Mm-hmm. So you did have that organic infantry support element uh, where they were following close behind. They were always staying with the tanks, operating in conjunction. And motorized means all on trucks or all on trucks. armor, armored yeah. personnel vehicles. Uh, later on, more armored personnel vehicles. Uh, I, I think they may have had a few for France, but that was really more of a, a, a later on thing. Yeah, because I know the Russian way to solve this was, well, soldier, just the ride tank. Yeah, yeah, the tank riders. Um, although the Russians also themselves, uh, and this bears on a lot of discussions of, of how impactful Lend-Lease was, the Russians were swimming in, like, old American trucks and half-tracks. Studebaker. Yeah, yeah, Studebaker's Jeeps, uh, M3 and M5 half-tracks. Yeah, I, I mean, Detroit motorized the Soviet army, basically. <laughs> No, I remember, um, you know, reading, skipping a, skipping a bit ahead here, I, I remember um, it's a, a book called, uh, it's by uh, Felix von Mellenthin, it's another one of these famous uh, post-war German, like, uh, military memoirs, and Mellenthin was, a, I think he was a general mayor, a one-star general, mm-hmm. uh, and he mentions basically that, like, Lend-Lease with the Soviets didn't really... In his opinion, it didn't really affect the war until 1943. So, I mean, which is sort of interesting to me because a lot of people will say like, well, the Soviets were just like using, you know, it would have collapsed were it not for, you know, Lend-Lease, which, you know, it's an argument you can make. But uh, basically Lend-Lease, it seems like Lend-Lease gave the Soviets the ability to do that like... um, armored attack with 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 infantry yes. it, was, it was the yeah. it wasn't the tanks the tanks we were giving them were basically shit but like the trucks the soviets couldn't manufacture enough trucks and you know it, i don't think there's any rubber in in russia it all comes from you know the congo so they were getting like tons of trucks from the west and and that's how you know the real effect was when they started doing those big attacks in 1943 like uh well i guess after after kursk and then 1944 right. like Mars and, and yeah. doing the big uh big like tank attacks and they could actually support with infantry because they had the western trucks but yeah i think i i agree 100 percent with that i mean lend lease was also impactful in other ways like i think that the the tanks early on did matter um you know they were getting like valentines from the the british which were were pretty good for 1940 41 mm-hmm. um they were getting a lot of just like aviation fuel stuff like that aircraft even though they were shitty aircraft they were something they enabled them to contest a little bit uh but yeah i I agree that like by by winter 42 uh 43 um that's that's exactly what was going on the soviet formations were being heavily motorized and mechanized by american production uh and without that the germans would have been 
much more easily able to hold a solid line and uh and would have probably been more successful in implementing uh, uh like uh, an elastic defense striking against you know doing counterattacks against mm-hmm. soviet penetrations uh which in the event because they were being more heavily motorized moved too fast for the germans to effectively counterattack them in, in many cases makes sense so what was guderian's role in the uh, 1940 uh campaign so guderian I, mean, I, I know is manstein came up with the the plan yeah it was his, that was his brainchild and then rommel was famous for being one of the the key leaders in that attack right rommel rommel was uh, was a divisional commander he commanded the seventh panzer division which mm-hmm. was not in guderian's corps uh guderian was a, a a corps commander um and his responsibility was for the immediate uh supervision of the forces racing through the ardennes uh, across the Meuse at Sedan and uh, the other one, what is it, Charleville maybe? Uh-huh. Sedan and the other one, whatever it's called. The two points where they crossed the river um, into France around the Maginot Line. Um, and then he didn't... I don't believe that his forces actually participated in, in, in the race to the sea or weren't the first was, ones there. Was that Rundstedt? Rundstedt was in... I believe overall command. Okay. Uh, again, someone might call me out on this. I might be misremembering. Yeah, like well, this, but... this, you know, this, this podcast is not, you know, we, we are not uh, the consummate experts on this. We are, we are simply popularizers. We are mere entertainers well, trying I, to bring. I want bring to be some... as correct as possible. <laughs> well, of course, we want to be as correct <laughs> as possible. But uh, the focus here is, yeah, trying to inspire the people to take an interest. So, anyways, Guderian, his forces make that that initial. Uh, uh, breakthrough and, and secure that bridgehead into northern France, uh, and then they're involved in the the sort of sweeping encirclement action uh, that goes the whole way to the English Channel, and then uh, uh, importantly, his his Panzer divisions, the three of them, are earmarked for the capture of the Channel ports, um, Boulogne, Calais, and most you know the one most people are familiar with, Dunkirk. Right. Um, and he has he has a lot to say about Dunkirk. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into that. No, I do. Yeah. What what is his? I want to hear his bitchy opinion on Dunkirk because I, I don't remember. So basically, um, uh, and it, it's funny how much actually bitchy, but possibly correct. Yeah, but I want I want to throw out here that it's it's interesting how much like the sort of uh, canonical view of, of World War II, the Western view of World War II is actually very much informed by Guderian and Manstein's memoirs here. Like, these mm-hmm. these are two very influential books. So you'll hear a lot of things that you might already be familiar with, arguments that are already familiar. Um, and what Guderian says in his book is that the failure to uh, to capture Dunkirk rests basically entirely on Hitler ordering this this halt order, uh, that they were not to advance and, and cut the British off from Dunkirk. Um, which Guderian found, like, incomprehensible that they would stop at this point. Like, they had yeah. the opportunity to annihilate the entire British expeditionary force. Um, in the event, like, 350,000 uh, uh, Allied troops would get out through the the Dunkirk encirclement yeah. uh, and make it back to Britain. So, uh, Guderian... And basically, the British would be totally screwed at that point because that was... They wouldn't, they, entire... wouldn't be, they wouldn't be able to train another army. They would just yeah. wouldn't have any people... Like to, they'd have plenty of people, but they wouldn't have 
people already knew how to train the other people. Yeah. I mean, it was still like a, a big uh, defeat for the British on a tactical level because the Germans captured like so much equipment. They outfitted like two or three entire divisions of their own with it. Um, mostly like second tier units, obviously, because of, you know, ammunition issues right. or whatever. Um, but a, a great victory strategically because the British got out with more or less their entire professional army intact and just had to like get them more guns, which is, you know, the easy part. It yeah. takes a while to train people, but they had more guns. Um, so why didn't they just, why did Hitler order the stop? Well, it's, it's, uh, or did he? Guderian, he did. And Guderian identifies like a couple of, of explanations that he thinks are the most plausible. And he says he's not sure about any of them. He says, on one hand, uh, that he thinks the, uh, the army high command was like too, too nervous and too cautious and like advised him that they had to halt, uh, because, you know, they wanted to, to turn the tanks around and, and head south as soon as possible, so they didn't want to waste them on an attack against, you know, an, an encircled enemy. Uh, there's also the the theory, and I think this is where this theory comes from, is from Guderian, uh, that Hitler thought that this would be some kind of goodwill gesture to the British that would help right. him make peace. I find this kind of idiotic i uh, yeah i really don't agree with that and then the third one which i which i i agree with is that it's because goring was an idiot and he was he promised hitler that like the luftwaffe could prevent the evacuation from from the air right uh Oosh, I, I, you're I uh, attacking my hero here yeah well i mean he was not really a, a competent military commander. I mean, he sat out most of the rest of the war. He he did not make decisions sort of after this. And I think except actually, the except the notorious Stalingrad promise of the well, same which, quality. Yeah, again, was was the same thing. He promised something that he it, he couldn't possibly deliver on. He and he probably just didn't know because he didn't pay attention to to the actual technical workings of the Luftwaffe. He was busy with his like lions and you know, forest hunting and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. If I'm going to give uh, uh, Goering credit for anything, like, he did a pretty good job as this sort of, like, economic Tsar uh, of, of, like, getting some of these, these major, uh, like, tank and aircraft production plants up. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, as far as the technical capabilities of the Luftwaffe itself, I, I really don't think that he had a clue. Um, and, and I think that's the most likely answer because, like, after this, Goering pretty quickly fell out of favor and like after Stalingrad, it was just done. Yeah, like that, that was that was two strikes, and and he was kind of out for the rest of the war. So after yeah, so the British get away at Dunkirk, and then uh, you know the campaign need not have been over then. I mean, the French could have kept on fighting, which they did. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was pretty much a decided thing, but the French, the the French were still were still holding on. Um, and it was wasn't this the point of uh, De Gaulle's counterattack? The one like counterattack of of uh, the war by the French, or the one major one. That was so that was during that was during that was when they're sweeping to, that was, up. That toward... was during the encirclement. Okay, um, and it was sort of uh, an abortive attempt to uh, to penetrate through the German encirclement, or at least threaten it to the point where the Germans had to back off. And it basically didn't work because, uh, well, frankly, because like Manstein had done his homework on his plan, uh -huh. and and he intentionally. Uh, had had been complaining to high command for months by the start of the campaign to give him another infantry uh, uh, army to attach to this this uh, 
this army group that was supposed to make the the encirclement for like exactly this reason that he needed more staying power on that flank to prevent exactly that that type of counterattack. Right. So I think Monstein just sort of out outsmarted the Gaul on that one or just was prepared for him. Um, there was a bit of panic in the ranks, according to Guderian, after that, like once that counterattack started, but they dealt with it pretty quickly. It was never a major threat to the operation. So so after. You know, after they cut off the entire French and British left and, uh, you know, got the channel ports, then they did operate uh, Case White, or no, sorry, Case White was no. Poland, Case Red. Yes. A yeah. to attack down south into France and, and finish off the French army. Right, right. Um, it, and was there, I mean, was there any panzer role in that or was it just kind of like a mopping up operation? Oh, there was definitely a, a panzer role. Um, what Guderian was responsible for there was he was basically leading the spearhead to then go and encircle the Maginot Line. Okay. Uh, cut that off and, and destroy those forces. And that was, you know, that was pretty much the end of it. And he recounts like a, a, a sort of funny uh, communication that he had. He basically, he's, he's driving hard for the Swiss border. Um, and there's not really any capable mobile reserve to stop them at this point because that was all destroyed in Belgium. Yeah. Um, and he reaches uh, like Pontarlier on, or you know, however you pronounce that Frenchoid, uh, you know, nonsense. Uh, Pontarlier on the on the Swiss border, and he radios high command. He's like, you know, have reached Pontarlier, like you know, awaiting further orders. And high command radios back, like, uh, assume you mean like Pontarlier further north, because there's two of them. And he's like, nope, like on the Swiss border. So they didn't. They, he was advancing so fast. Yeah, they just didn't even know what like, was going on. Or, like, didn't believe him that he was already there, which it's a little bit of a self-congratulatory. No, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're mispronouncing these French names because I don't know what you're talking about either. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, that's one of the key things with this podcast I probably said before. You know, we like to uh, we like to piss off everybody in Europe, and we do that by praising the Germans, insulting the French, and ignoring the British. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, that... Uh, wraps up the French campaign, but let's talk, um, actually, do you want to, let's, let's backtrack a little bit and talk about, Pol- do you have anything to say about Poland? Oh yeah, I guess we kind of, we kind of skipped we did, over we, that. We, yeah, we, yeah. Skip, we skipped over Poland on uh, September 1939. So Poland was... So the, 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 the basic Polish campaign plan was like attack from all directions, attack from, from Silesia and from uh, Eastern Germany and attack from uh, the you know isolated East Prussia, and just take Danzig, sweep into Central Poland, and like just annihilate them everywhere. Yeah, honestly, the the plan was pretty simple. The major thrust of it was from Silesia, uh, uh, on the the border, uh, to link up with forces in East Prussia. Like that that was the major thrust. There were also attacks uh, from Slovakia. There were smaller attacks against, like, Krakow, against Danzig, um, and some skirmishes around East Prussia. But the main thrust was coming from Silesia, and, uh, uh, which is where the Panzer forces were committed. And so we have the notorious, the the story that I have heard is true or not true of Polish cavalry attacking uh German tanks. Oh yeah. So like, yeah. the Polish had the Poles had tanks though. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't as uh, you know one sided as yeah. as it's portrayed. So I I brought it up just because of the the kind of comparison with this like you know this fun fact about the the French commanders like waving flags to each other um, 
which, you know, like most of these war stories, is not entirely accurate. The French did have, you know, were, were implementing radios at that time. Um, it wasn't just like a total clown show. Uh, and the same deal with this, this story about the Polish cavalry, like, like charging the panzers. Uh, you know, they weren't running out there like, you know, in, in like winged hussar uniforms with lances. <laughs> uh, the, the Polish cavalry was actually uh, equipped pretty well with anti-tank weapons, and they did actually cause... Um, a, a good amount of damage to one of the Panzer battalions, which uh, Guderian actually comments on that, like, the appearance of this Polish cavalry force actually caused a bit of panic. Um, because how they, do you uh, how do you use anti-tank weapons from horseback? Well, I mean, no one was fighting from horseback. Uh, the the cavalry divisions. The the point was to keep them as mobile as possible. Uh, they kept their weapons light. They had a enough horses to carry both men and equipment to wherever they had to go. So they, they were, they were fast moving infantry forces. Oh, so you just dismount, like group yeah, all your horses, put all your horses with like, you know, one, a few, a few guys and then dismount and fight like, like an infantry unit. Right, right, exactly. And, and they would have oftentimes like specialized lighter equipment to make it faster. You know, you, you could, you could move the horses faster, uh, with this lighter equipment, uh, tried to keep the supply train to a minimum. Most people carried their own stuff. Um, that's basically how, how cavalry were, were employed at the time uh, by all, all nations, was they were, they were a fast-moving infantry force. Um, so yeah, this Polish cavalry actually caused the Germans a, a bit of a scare, because uh, they're they fairly elite and, and well-equipped uh, among the Polish army. Uh, it's just kind of a funny story. Now, the last point that I want to make on this is that um, Guderian's account is mostly from the front. Uh, but Manstein takes sort of the larger view on the Polish campaign, where he says, you know, we did we did a lot of things right, um, but the Polish situation was sort of hopeless from the start, just because of the the superiority in arms of the the German army. Uh, and at the same time, he says that the Poles helped the Germans out a lot by committing to a very bad defensive strategy. Uh, where they had a lot of their army close to the borders, where it could be easily encircled. Yeah, I, I, I read I read some uh, this part of Manstein's book back in college, and I remember him saying just that. And then he he what I liked about Manstein is that he actually he provide unlike a lot of the war memoirs that just like recount what happened. And Guderian is very much like that. He just basically yep. recounts what happened. Manstein does some analysis, and he says like, "Well, if I was them, this is what I would have done." Right. He takes that larger picture view. Uh, frankly, of the two books, if anyone was gonna was gonna choose to read one or the other of them, uh, I think Manstein's uh, Lost Victories is honestly a bit more interesting. Well, I'll have to read it. Well, maybe we'll, we'll have to do a separate episode on that because uh, I liked Guderian because he's he's just so catty. He uh... he is. He is. He's <laughs> yeah. He's a very a very political kind of general not in the sense of involving himself in civilian politics but like with the internal politics of the military he was uh uh very much he seems like a lot more of a fun guy than manstein probably he'd probably be more fun to drink with manstein <laughs> is very much this like you know straight backed straight laced like prussian officer and he keeps he does this thing um in his book or in the parts i've read where he's always like oh, i want to thank i want to thank all of the men for all the hard work and all the hard things they did and it just yeah. it kind of strikes me as like i hear this this is the kind of shit you hear about, like, the U.S. military from people, this, like, very patriotic, self-congratulatory shit. Yep. It's like, I don't want to hear that crap. <laughs> I want to hear I want to hear you complain about your, like, civilian leadership and how the other bad officers. your superiors were, yeah. like, how much they screwed up all your plans. It's all their fault. These guys are assholes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> 
I did nothing wrong. I had all the right ideas. People should have just listened to me, but exactly. no. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and so what, what, I mean, according to Manstein, what should the polls have done? I mean, it seems like a pretty hopeless situation. He says basically, like, so he starts it off by saying, like, if the Western allies weren't actually going to commit to a serious attack in the West, there was no way the polls could have won. Uh, but the, given that, like, if their expectation had to be that the Western allies were going to do something significant, then the only reasonable plan would have been to hold in a more defensible position, sacrifice uh, space for time, mm-hmm. and and just try to hold out with as much territory as they could. Right, preserve their combat force, but give up territory. Right, right. Where what the Poles tried to do is basically stand on the frontiers and keep some of these industrial areas like in Upper Silesia and... and yeah, what I mean, it's like that... I mean, it makes sense in a way, but... Doesn't don't the poles wouldn't the poles have to keep Danzig in order to have any hope of relief from the British? Well, they, they need that po- they need that port. They weren't going to get actual military relief. Like they weren't going to get an expeditionary force unless possibly it came through Romania, uh-huh. which was something the Allies were trying to to arrange for diplomatically. Um, but they could have at least held on until an attack in the West forced the Germans to withdraw the greater ah, part of their combat force. Makes, that was the idea. Makes sense, yeah. Uh, and he says, basically, yeah, the Poles just kind of, like, threw... They just threw the battle by doing something that didn't make sense even if they were expecting the Western Allies to help them because it, by the point where they could have launched an offensive, it would have already been too late for Poland. So. My my impression on that is basically, like, if you... Um, if they had Mount Marshal Pilsudski still in charge, if they had, like, a real, like a leader who was nationally like acclaimed and just com- had complete control you could have done a strategy like that where you actually gave up a ton of territory but the problem is when you don't have a national leader of that stature then all the politicians are just going to be like well i'm going to stand and, t- and keep danzig that's the that's what we have to do yeah so it's almost impossible to formulate like a, a very difficult and risky strategy like like manstein's recommending and, th- and that's what manstein says is that you know that might just be like what he's talking about might just be purely academic because any polish government that committed to that plan would have been thrown out like in a matter of of hours yeah uh for for giving up that much polish territory um so you know yeah yeah all right let's move on to russia because the Russian campaign just dwarfs all the other campaigns, and it's also something that, you know, I think it was three million men on the Axis side attacking against uh, four or five millions of Russians uh, just at the beginning, and then, you know, more and more and more were added into that. Yeah, and something like that. It's the biggest the biggest land campaign of all time by, I guess, most estimates, or... Uh, I don't know what could possibly be, be larger. I don't know, maybe the maybe the Mongols or something. Uh, nah, not even close. Nah. No. Nah. No, this, uh, this is definitely far and away the largest military operation ever conducted. Um, yeah. So Guderian's uh, he was in, in the uh, in the Russian campaign in Barbarossa. I'll just recite the basic facts. There were three three fronts: mm-hmm. uh, army armies group army groups north, center, and south, uh, commanded by uh, von Lieb in the north. Uh, von Bach in the middle, von Rundstedt in the south. And Guderian was in charge of a, a panzer army in Army Group Center. So at this point, they, yeah. they'd advanced to, they'd, they'd agreed with Guderian's position that we needed to concentrate 
Panzer forces. So they'd given him whole Panzer armies. An army is is bigger than a corps, which is bigger than a division, right. bigger right. than a battalion. And uh, there was another group, uh, army group. Uh, sorry, uh, Panzer Panzer Army Two was Guderian. Panzer Army Three was uh, Herman, also an army, Herman Hoth. Yeah, yeah. Al- also with Army Group Center, and they were attacking into I guess now what's what's Belarus and like moving around the the uh, Pripyat marshes, which are yep. huge uh, marsh swamp area in in Belarus. I mean Belarus, I think of Belarus and I just think of like a European Vietnam just yeah. swamps and trees and not easy to maneuver, no roads. It's uh today it's, it's Alabama, roughly, West uh, Mississippi basically. Yeah, today it's roughly the border area between Belarus and Ukraine. Uh, uh Chernobyl is Yeah, I was going to say Chern- like yeah. Chernobyl. Um so yeah, and that that was like the junction between army groups center and south for obvious reasons. Like you can't really do any kind of maneuvering in that terrain, so mm-hmm. so they they kind of just went around it. They sent some some light forces through it, some cavalry and whatever to flush out like whatever Soviet troops were were straggling around in there. And and um, basically the German plan was we need to destroy the Soviet army. It was less focused on at least initially, it was we need to destroy the Soviet army. It was less focused on actual uh, geographic objectives. Correct. Yeah, the, their their initial plan. Uh, well, it, they did have objectives, but the objectives were were uh, like almost secondary, at least at the start of the campaign. The first and primary objective was the, basically the destruction of Soviet, uh, at least offensive power within like 500 kilometers of the of the frontier mm-hmm. at that point um so basically you know within uh, uh the like the dnieper and the the divina river areas okay the, the dnieper is the one that runs from like basically chernobyl and like runs north through, central through ukraine, ukraine and then yeah. through kiev and then down yep right uh, in the middle the... of of today's ukraine um although for how much longer <laughs> that will be the case is, is open for for debate um, but it's a massive river i mean it's like in oh, it's in, in the yeah. center and in the south of ukraine it's like a huge like very wide river very good defensive position yes um and and so that was uh and that exactly is part of the the reasoning for trying to get them before they can cross that river because if, the, if they can get behind it and set up a defensive line it would be very hard to dislodge them okay um but uh, but Guderian's forces are going uh, in in the center, and so they're basically driving through uh, through Belarus and and then into central Russia, uh, with their ultimate objective being Moscow. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Guderian had had some some problems with this, as he does with most of the decisions made by anyone who's not himself, uh, as we all do. Right, right, right. So so he had this issue where um, he he complained about the high command not setting a clear geographical objective. What he wanted was for an initial focus on Leningrad in the north, today St. Petersburg, um, to secure the Baltic Sea and supply Army Group North from from there. Uh, you know, a secure point on which they could anchor the rest of, of the effect. Yeah, so his, his basically his strategic uh, model would have been take Leningrad because that's a, a seaport. And then from there, you could like strike south toward Moscow. Right, right. Anchor, anchor the offensive off of Leningrad. And then strike Moscow with with uh, with your whole northern flank secure 
also because they're they're backed up by the Finns up north, so they mm-hmm. have a secure a secure flank that they can anchor on. So just like the Teutonic Knights, we're going to take the Baltic and then yeah, cr- Christianize yeah, these so. pagans. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, they, 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 the Teutonic Knights did fight a war against Novgorod. Uh, yeah, many, many even, several even wars. The Orthodox. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so this this is where you start getting into like uh, uh, the big the big discussion about the the Russian campaign, because as they're driving on, you know, they they, they surround Leningrad uh, and they're going for Moscow. Uh, Guderian uh, with with his Panzer Group and with the rest of Army Group Center are at this point very close to Moscow, uh, and they're they're advocating for a full out push to capture the city. Hitler decides differently. Uh, Hitler says, uh, we're going to take your, your panzer group and send it south. You're going to link up with the panzer group from army group south, uh, which is currently in, in like central Ukraine. We're going to encircle Kiev, uh, destroy the Soviet forces there, and then occupy these, uh, these, these productive economic regions in, uh, in southern and eastern Ukraine. Um, and Guderian throws kind of a fit over this. Uh, he's he's very upset uh, because he's he's saying, well, you know, if we do that, then there's no way that we take Moscow. If we don't take Moscow, then we're failing our objectives. Uh, you know, to hell with the South. We should just drive on Moscow now. Right, because it's August, September, and the roads are going to be impassable by October, and we need to cut off Moscow because that's where all the Soviet rail. Uh, you know, uh, railroad logistical systems converge on Moscow. A lot of their their uh, their industry, especially the more advanced industrial equipment, is in Moscow at this point. Um, and he, I mean, he's he's absolutely right that Moscow was the critical infrastructure and logistics hub of the Soviet Union. There's there's no denying that. Um, but Hitler's coming at it from a different direction. Where... So argue for Hitler for me, please. All right. All right. So, so uh... I want you to argue for Hitler because I want Hitler to win. All right. So Hitler is is not thinking in the same terms as these general staff guys who just want to capture Moscow uh, because you know because it's important, right? It has this this symbolic importance. Right. We have we have to take Moscow because it's prestige, and uh, right. you know that'll that'll read well in the headlines. And right. And, and I'll be I'll be that... the conqueror of the first conqueror of Moscow since Napoleon. Right. And. Right. And, you know, of course, once we take that, the, the, the Soviets will just surrender, right? Just like the French. You know, you just take Paris and they, they throw in the towel. Well, I, I, don't, I don't really agree with their, their optimistic presentation of that. Like, the Soviets are not giving up if you take Moscow. Uh, this might get you some military advantages, but they still have all those industrial zones in the south. They still have all their industrial zones in the Urals. Just like Napoleon's army, they can keep pulling back east. Like, they're not going to be finished when you just take Moscow. Moscow was more important then than it was in Napoleon's day, sure, uh, but it's still not going to end the war. The The Russians are still going to get Lend-Lease through, through the south, through Iran, and through Vladivostok. Well, but here's the, here's the reason that, that the Ukraine isn't as important. Because the Soviets had, at the beginning of the war, already evacuated a lot of their heavy industry from Ukraine, amazingly. I mean, it's sort of like a, a miracle of logistics that they were able to like dismantle a lot of their factories and move them move them to the Urals while like their army was just disintegrating. So if you take Ukraine, yeah, you get it. You get like a million men prisoners of war who, you know, you have to feed and deal with, but you got to take Moscow because that's where, I mean, it's like you said, logistics and 
that's like going to be your base where you can actually strike at the Soviet uh, industrial areas farther east. Well, striking at those industrial areas is still going to be a hell of an undertaking. You're going to be, I mean, logistics, just capturing Moscow might impair the Soviet logistics system, but it's not going to make the German one any better because they were already struggling with, with adjusting like the railway gauges and getting locomotives and everything. Um, so taking taking Moscow doesn't help them get stuff okay, from, but from the Polish border because the front line. Railway gauges because the Soviet railway gate the Soviet rail tracks were set narrower than German right. rail tracks. So yeah, you had this, to. This is worth explaining that this was a <laughs> this was a, a difficulty for the Germans through the entire campaign. The Soviets were like you said on a, on a narrow gauge rail system. It was not compatible with German uh, uh, cars and locomotives. So. If they, if they wanted to use a rail line, they had to send engineers and construction guys to basically pick up the tracks and move them and reset the gauge so that they could they could use German trains on them. And they couldn't. And if they did that, then they can't use captured Soviet trains. Well, that wasn't. I mean, or ca- captured like rolling stock and and uh, locomotives. They just didn't really have much of that because the Soviets had been had been effective in evacuating. Oh, okay. That um, that was what actually they were hoping to get. Uh, enough locomotives and rolling stock to be able to use the Soviet rail lines as well uh, never really happened um, now on the the Ukraine thing like you know you you would deprive the Soviets of a lot of really crucial stuff that then you know sure can they get it from the Western allies yeah but every ton of, of grain or coal that they need to bring in from America is one less ton of military equipment um, also, like, I think Guderian is, is skipping over, uh, a critical part of this. Like he's accusing Hitler of, of, uh, changing his mind between two different options, not being decisive, uh, about obtaining these objectives. But like we said at the start, the primary objective was to destroy the Soviet army, not to take Moscow or Leningrad. Uh, and Hitler was following through on that by, uh, uh, ordering this shift to the south, but it is it is much more in keeping with like the the German way of war, going back to Frederick the Great uh, or even the Great Elector, to try to win a war as quickly as possible. And if Hitler's playing this game where he's thinking, well, we need to take the Ukraine because we need the we need the grain and we need uh you know we we need the we basically need to be able to fight a long war against the Western Allies, so let's take Ukraine. It's violating the basic principle that that the Germans need to knock out the Soviet army or the Soviet entire system as quickly as possible. I think they were able to achieve both by that move because it was it was not only an economic boon for Germany, which which it was. Uh, and uh, Guderian even kind of has to admit that he says, "Yeah, well, actually, the harvest was really good that year, and we captured enough grain to feed basically not only the entire local civilian population." But also basically the entire army, uh, without dipping into our own stocks. Uh, at the same time, they took like a million prisoners in in the Kiev encirclement. Yeah, who they were just uh, having to feed with all that grain that they captured. So which they net, easily, n- you know, net but, neutral, right? Net neutral on terms of food, but actually not even because they still had enough left over for their own army. I, I'm being somewhat disingenuous uh, here. I'm sure the amount of <laughs> I'm sure the amount of food that was captured was way more than the amount of like Soviet prisoners and yeah, yeah. I mean, also you know, <laughs> what do, Russians can like eat bark, bark anyway? They don't give a shit about grain. <laughs> <laughs> but the um, I mean, the bigger thing is that deprived the, the Soviets of basically an entire army group. I mean, this took a huge chunk out of their their offensive power, uh, which otherwise 
would have would have been sitting there with enough food for their whole army with a whole bunch of, of new production from the south from like the Donbass industrial regions uh, that would have been a a constant thorn in the German side they wouldn't have just given up because Moscow was taken so regardless of whether they chose to drive on well, Moscow not have... or into Ukraine the mm. war would have continued into the next year but they might not have given up I mean st- uh, well they might Stalin like had a train ready to flee on like Stalin was was uh, ready to run away oh yeah and it's not just it's not a matter of necessarily the whole Soviet Union giving up it's by taking Moscow you deal such a huge prestige blow to the Soviet regime that maybe other generals or other people decide to try to overthrow Stalin and reach a deal. There's well, a, a sort of big strategic uh, political picture here, too. I think that they were kind of disillusioned with that idea at this point. Uh, you know, the, the whole idea of forming like a Russian army of liberation had basically been uh, sort of vaporware like it, it never really happened most of the the pow's who would like sign up for it mostly just wanted the like the better rations uh were prone to running away in fights weren't really reliable for anything other than rear area duties typical um well yeah i, I mean it's just tr- not they just weren't reliable they were you know these foreign auxiliaries that basically just didn't want to actually fight they just wanted to bully peasants well so let's go into that actually uh <laughs> Well, I'm still not convinced that Hitler's opinion was correct. I'm I'm uh, on uh, sticking with Team Kennedy Tate here that they should have just taken Moscow. But with the political aspect, Hitler order, gave the notorious Commissar Order in summer of 1941, like early on in the campaign, which was that any Commissar found or captured right was to be shot. For uh, for context, the the commissars were basically the the political officers that were attached to so like every Soviet union unit above a certain size had a political officer uh, who basically had more or less power of life and death uh, over over the troops uh, was there for you know disciplinary purposes. Uh, what I know sort of how this worked because y- y- you had the, the general officer structure within the Soviet army. And this, this goes back to like the Russian Civil War. And you think of communism. Communism says that everybody's equal. So having officers, having people with epaulets on with an actual status like higher than the men is contrary to the principles of you know orthodox Marxism. But in the Soviet army early on in the Civil War, they had They'd, inter- they'd actually started hiring or uh, re- recruiting officers from the white, or not the white army, but the old uh, czarist army right. to use because they were they just didn't have the command and control of the red army that the white armies had in the civil war. And so like the Soviets sort- started to adopt a, an officer system. And early on, they had like funny, and you notice they had like funny terms. They didn't call them like lieutenant or colonel or anything like that. They called them like commander of brigade. Right. As, instead of, so... Yeah, it, it, not, short- not giving them official titles sort yeah, of in, in an effort to, to distance themselves from the Tsarist military. Yeah, so like instead yeah. of... There's a Russian word like... There's a famous Russian song called Kombat, which is about the commander of a brigade, Kom, commander, brigade, bat. Ah. Um, people hear it and they think it means combat. And it's Commandir Brigada right. or Commandir Bataliona. Um, but I think it was it was just a few years before World War II, the Soviets actually switched to bring back the old officer titles and they switched to 
actually giving epaulets, which is like a big thing because epaulet is like the the symbol of an officer uh, in, in like the Russian, you know, in all armies, but especially in the Russian system. It was like that's, you know, you see a guy with a big shiny gold thing on his shoulder. Right. And that's like that guy is untouchable. But it's weird. So the Soviets didn't weren't even though they had like brought back the officer system of the Tsarist army pretty much uh, by World War Two. They weren't fully trusting these guys. I mean, Stalin spent 1936 to 1938 purging all of these guys, uh, especially the, the upper and mid ranks. He, he purged three out of his five marshals of the Soviet Union. And but in order to, like, politically stiffen them, they had the commissars who were like fanatically indoctrinated, presumably heavily Jewish. Oh, uh, yeah. they Well, they were. Oh, yeah. okay. And they, they were, as you said, yeah, the ideological enforcers within within the military. So it'd be like um, taking an FBI agent and attaching him to every, like, army company. Basically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, yeah, I mean, don't, yeah, don't, suge- don't, suggestions. don't say it like it's something that they won't do eventually. Yeah, really. Um, so uh, the commissar order was... Uh, any commissar captured is going to be shot, which sounds, yep. I mean, contrary to the Geneva Conventions. I mean, if if the commissar is uniformed and a member of the military, oh yeah, well, it's it's totally contrary to the Geneva Conventions. But uh, but the Russians didn't sign, or the Soviets didn't sign the Geneva Convention, so oh. uh, the Germans didn't feel bound to comport themselves in that manner. Uh, which I mean, you know, some of the German officers didn't didn't like the idea of of that because they wanted to hold themselves to sort of a higher standard, you know, despite what their opponents were doing. They felt it was a stain on their honor. Um, but I mean, just you know, if you want to be technical about it, they were well within their rights under international law to do this because the Soviets weren't a signatory. So, Hardcore, you know. So what was Guderian's opinion on uh, the Commissar Order? Well, Guderian said uh, uh, that he never implemented it or forwarded it to his other commanders which i think is total bullshit oh you uh, think it's a cope i i think he's just lying uh because this of course was after the nuremberg trials and uh, you know he he got off pretty easy um yeah, he was out by like the start of the 1950s of of jail uh i think like he was convicted on some, i think like, he was in account. jail for a few years but yeah just i mean l- like a lot of the generals is they they got sentenced to like 15 years and let out after like three or four um the western allies realized they kind of no, they, these guys they in the treat, treated treated those guys better than they treated james fields oh yeah yeah for sure yeah you, you literally can't even get the leniency of the nuremberg trials anymore as if that was lenient you know um, yeah i mean yeah like it, it <laughs> side side note but like the nuremberg trials just the notion of trying if you're in a european war with an an enemy that is defeated uh you the whole notion of like trying them for you're guilty of the war is ridiculous don't even don't even get me started we won't get to anything else no uh (laughs) (laughs) um so I think he's just saying this uh, as, as like, yeah, kind of a cope, like, oh, you know, the military, we didn't do anything wrong. And you'll actually often see this coming from, like, leftists or, or liberals who will uh, uh, sort of challenge Guderian for, for spreading what they call, like, the myth of the clean Wehrmacht. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and honestly, like, they're, they're, they're pretty right, just not in the sense that they mean it, because they didn't actually do anything wrong, in my opinion— uh, 
but he's still trying to escape from uh, uh, being associated with a lot of this fabricated right. crap. Not only did the Wehrmacht not do anything wrong, but Hitler did nothing wrong. Right, right. Yeah. That's that's the second part. That, yeah, that, okay. Yeah, that's that's necessary for the full context. There's this, there's a similar thing with the Italians. Um, there's the quote unquote myth of the Ita- Italiani bravi genti that like the Italians were uh, blameless for the war and. It's like, I mean, yes. (laughs) Well, yeah. I I mean, uh, whatever. It's kind of like, it's the same thing. It's one of those things in history. It's like uh, the stab in the back. It's like, oh, the stab in the back in World War One was a myth. It's like, well, no, No, the the liberal position is a straw man of the stab in the back uh, position. It's, I mean, which without getting into that, basically the stab in the back was. It's factual that the, the social democratic parliamentary government you know, betrayed the Germany basically, and under they undermined their negotiating position. Yes, because the liberal uh, reading of history is well, the Germans are going to lose the war anyway. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, what matters is the negotiating position. You exactly. Idiots. That's how they wound up with with Versailles. So the stab in the back. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to get further into it. But okay, yeah, but so Commissar order, Guderian says that he didn't implement it. Who knows? But. The Germans basically failed to rally the Soviet population to them, uh, which was probably possible, at least uh, because, I mean, Guderian says that they were welcomed as liberators. He even mentions one point that they went to some village and the people came out and, and greeted the Germans and were asking about their little father, that is the Tsar. Uh, and one could easily believe that a Russian in the 1940s wasn't really informed. <laughs> that it seems a little bit unbelievable, but yeah. I mean, there's I mean, if some you're in, vi- if you're in some village in Belarus, yeah, some yeah. village surrounded by it's forests not like they get newspapers. and newspapers. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Guderian kind of undermines his own position with that a bit because he also, at the same time, says that. Uh, uh, like some POWs, he mentions the example of uh, a POW who had been a Tsarist officer who says basically like, look, if you guys had come here 20 years ago, you would have been welcomed as liberators. But like now, like we've just started to rebuild, like things are just starting to look up for us. And at this point, we're just fighting for Russia, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, just sort of undermines the rest of what he's saying, because apparently they were not greeted as liberators in all instances. I mean, like I think in Ukraine they were because of the Holodomor but not in many other places, not in Russia proper, for example. Um, and then also at the same time, he, he continues this trend of trying to pin like literally everything that went wrong on either on like civilian leadership in the SS, uh, which I think is, is again, him trying to do this clean Wehrmacht thing and excuse the army of any blame because he has political interests. At, at it's state. like a, it's like, defendants at a trial uh it is. squabbling yeah. about who who is guilty and who isn't i'm not guilty but all my co-defendants are yeah that's basically how it reads because he's happy to acknowledge the fault of the general staff especially people that he didn't like or who he argued with when it comes to actual military decisions like this was the wrong decision to attack here instead of here uh, but when it comes to like anything even close to what was being discussed at the nuremberg trials he's like nope we knew nothing about it had no idea um and also, like, doesn't even really try to deny stuff. It just kind of says, oh, well, if that happened, the SS did it. It wasn't me. Uh-huh. Which I, I, I think that's a load of crap. 
I think there was what whatever stuff actually did happen out of out of all that uh, everything that was discussed at Nuremberg. Like he knew about it, one hundred percent. Sounds like you're a pretty big Guderian fan here. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so in the uh, they didn't take Moscow, as everybody knows, uh, and then. You know, at the at the gates of Moscow in December 1941, the Germans have a, a pretty big salient. Just I think it was north of the city, right? And they they're like uh, west mostly. They're, yeah. they're 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 getting that like they're getting around it. They're they're trying to get around it. And uh, Hitler ge- gives the notorious or uh, correct or incorrect but well known order to stand your ground. Right. And Hitler's position on this was well i need to i need to give an order for everybody to stand the ground one because the ground is so hard that they need to dig in they need to dig in now and there's we can't like run away and then dig in somewhere else because we're just not going to be able to dig in again um but also because more from a moral point of view the officers and the generals uh hitler was of the opinion that they basically were, they just lacked a backbone and that they would take pretty much any excuse they could to fall back. And he was worried about a general route ensuing, uh, similar to what right. happened to Napoleon when Napoleon ordered the retreat from Moscow. It, it, it should have been orderly or could have been orderly perhaps. But, uh, once you start retreating, morale breaks down, um, and the enemy gets the initiative. Right. That's, that's exactly what he thought was that if he allowed them to pull back, you know, 10 kilometers, they'd be falling back 500 kilometers. By the end of the month, they'd be back in Smolensk, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, Guderian. But, but Guderian, like, did kind of disobey that order. Somewhat. He, he made a couple of minor withdrawals that, that led to, like, you know, furious arguments with, with Hitler. Um, and he argues in the book, he's like, well, you know, you see, uh, it's clear that uh, this drawing would not really result in a general rout. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he has his reasons, um, but I, I think it's it's uh, it's sort of funny how Guderian wants to have it both ways. Like when he talks about commanding his own uh, panzer troops um, and he says, like, you know, never never believe your your subordinate commanders when they say they're out of fuel because usually that just means that they're tired. Like there's always there's always more fuel as oh, so, the, the logistics are working. So Guderian was basically as cynical about his division commanders as Hitler was about his generals. Right, right. But he gets really mad when Hitler basically says the same thing to him <laughs> of like, you know, look, I know you want to fall back, but like I think you can hold. So I'm ordering you to hold and just deal with it. Like figure it out for yourself. And he he gets really upset about that, but then turns around and does the same thing to his divisional commanders. Well, you know, not everybody's perfect. Yeah. I guess, so, uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, the one thing that could maybe be said about that is that Guderian at least would go and, and actually check on his frontline units uh, and constantly complain about the general staff and Hitler like being back in East Prussia and having no idea what was going on in Moscow a thousand kilometers away. Right. He uh, so right after right around Christmas time, nineteen forty one, Guderian got relieved of command by Hitler because Hitler was pissed at him for these little withdrawals he was doing, and he was also he was also getting into arguments with uh, his direct superior. I think it was direct superior it was von Kluge, and Army Group Center Commander. Uh, maybe he was by this time because originally it was von Bach, but I 
Bach might have been replaced. At any rate, Kluge and Guderian uh, developed a intense hatred of each other, so much so that Kluge challenged Guderian to a duel, a very 19th century move. And Guderian was, of course, as a man of honor, willing to accept. But Hitler found out about this and said, no, you're not doing that. This is this will be, uh, you know, ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but so Guderian got got cashiered and spent most of 1942 back on his farm. Uh, he was given a nice farm by Hitler. I mean, what's funny about Hitler versus Stalin uh, is that like people talk about Hitler and Stalin as if they're equivalents. But like if you failed Stalin or Stalin suspected you, you just got shot. Yeah, you just got a, a bullet in the head, and Hitler was like, okay. Hitler was like, okay. I'm, I'm done with you. Like, I can't stand your bullshit anymore. Uh, go live on a nice country estate in, in Posen. Like, right. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know... Oof, what, a, what a brutal dictator. It's you right, con- contrasting, yeah, like a, a, a primus inter pares, like Hitler, uh, yeah. first among equals, versus Stalin, who was truly an, an oriental despot. Uh, you know, that sort of made side point but that sort of made me start to question like the whole hitler narrative you read about like hitler and it's like no you're not i'm not just going to shoot you out of hand like i'm gonna you're just gonna have to retire and like go be a cattle breeder for the next like few months it it wasn't until the you know the july plot when like they tried to kill him that hitler actually started having people executed uh and i mean and in that circumstance i feel like it's a little bit justified maybe (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, uh, yeah, sure. Actually, yeah, categorically, yes, I'll agree. <laughs> yeah. I'll agree on that. But Guderian spent the next spent most of 1942. Um, you know, the whole the, in 1942 was there was the uh, the push into uh, the the Kuban and toward the Caucasus, and then toward Stalingrad. Stalingrad disaster happens, and uh, uh, Manstein very adroitly handles the retreat and saves a lot of uh, German forces. And Guderian is recalled to duty in early 1943 as inspector of panzer troops. Right, right. And and this is where we can kind of get into maybe a little bit more of the discussion of like how this this type of armored warfare actually worked. Because um, he gets called in as, as the inspector, and basically the Germans are, are facing a couple of problems with their, their tank design and production at this point. So they've... They've encountered the Soviet T-34 at this point, which they've been fighting against all through, you know, 41 and 42. Uh, and they don't have a, a great answer for it. Uh, and can we sing the praises of the T-34 for a second? Well, sure, absolutely. So it was a a tank the Soviets had designed. It was introduced by surprise in 1941. The Germans, when they first saw it, had, you know, had no idea the Soviets had this tank. Yep. It was, it had a, pretty good main gun it had great cross-country performance it was a typical russian weapon it was like the ak-47 it was like magnificently easy to produce uh it was super easy to maintain Mm -hmm. and any moron like russian peasant no offense could like figure out how to use it and how to how to keep it clean right it's basically a tractor you know the the germans were were driving like a friggin mercedes like i mean literally this is uh, this is so it's so typical this is so typical of the west it's not just the germans americans we do this too we are all about like oh yes i will have the perfect machine the perfect gun the perfect tank the perfect iphone it will be able to do everything whereas the russians are have this wonderfully uh efficient 
an economical mentality of like, I will take a hanger on twist it and make it into exactly what I need to have a, a 10 cent solution for, you know, a $500 problem, which I mean, something, sometimes there's something to be said for the, the better equipment, especially as it concerns, like, maybe your troops morale and tactical ability. Um, okay, but, yeah, whatever. Know, as, uh, <laughs> as, uh, as Stalin said, you know, sometimes uh, quantity has a quality all its own, right? Um, but so the, the Germans were real were really concerned by this. The main problem with the T-34 was that the Germans didn't have a good enough gun to reliably penetrate it. They typically had to either get on its side or behind it or get some kind of lucky shot to disable it or, or, or knock it out. Um, and the uh the big thing with that was the armor the the sloped armor which mm-hmm. is very famous basically you know um it's not like the germans were were exactly ignorant of this like yeah when you angle the armor uh you get a higher effective thickness like you know just think about looking at the cross section of a you know a, a plate of armor and angle it at 30 degrees go through it vertically you 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 have to cross a higher Right, and it's uh, gonna it might deflect deflect the shell anyway. Right, right. and deflection. Um, now there is a trade off to that actually, which is that you are reducing the internal volume of the tank, which was a big problem with the T thirty four. The crew maneuverability was very low. They also had the same problem I was talking about with the the commander uh, also being the loader, uh, which led to a lot of just like poor tactical employment of the tanks because the commanders just didn't have the the luxury yeah busy fishing out shells while like he's being like surround or cut off on the side or something yep um and the soviets actually figured this out and later addressed it with the 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 1943 model of the t-34 uh which they upgraded with a a wider turret ring and a larger turret with a a separate loader and commander um but anyway so guderian comes into the uh the inspectorate of the, the the panzer troops um and at this point, they're working on... And he's given, like, wide-ranging powers. I mean, not just, like, inspect... When you say inspecting, you think of, like, oh, yeah. lo- looking for problems, but he was well, given... it's kind of like how Ludendorff was, like, the general quartermaster, you know? Mm-hmm. Much more extensive powers than what's in the title itself. So he was allowed to uh, dictate, like, what would be produced. Yep. Yep. He was... He, he was... Had, like, plenary powers over this, um, you know, amalgamation of... Uh, industrial concerns, tank producers, um, you know, different branches of, of the military, uh, including stuff that had been, that, like there was some wrangling over the assault guns, basically like armored artillery pieces. So, yeah, for, if anybody doesn't doesn't know, an, an assault gun is, it's a tank, but it doesn't have a turret. So it can right. only, it's, it's, or think of it this way, it's a, it's a howitzer with a chassis underneath it. So it can't, it can't shoot side to side. You have to actually turn the whole vehicle if you want to shoot in a different right, direction. Right. So they were being used as basically armored artillery pieces. Uh, the initial idea was to have them as, as like infantry support. Um, and anyways, so they had been considered part of the artillery. They weren't under the panzer arm. But Guderian had all this wrangling over like getting them back and, and basically trying to finally follow through on the ideas that he'd had the whole time, which had always been done in kind of half measures of having the armored forces as like a real separate branch. Uh, he got pretty close to that with, with this appointment. Um, and his, his, his big thing at this, uh, at this position was getting out into the field like a mass-produced 
new tank model that could effectively deal with their their opponent's tanks and getting them to uh, uh, consolidate what tank forces they had into again like more operational units he had this issue where they were making more tank divisions while not having enough tanks to re to replace the losses in the older ones which yeah. was, was very stupid um well so he mentions like when they're when the german designers are trying to come up with like new tanks i mean beyond the panzer four and he was he mentions they actually thought about just stealing the whole t-34 design and just right. manufacturing t-34s for one thing german pride would be hurt by doing that but I, there was there were certain technical reasons they couldn't do that either uh and so they started working on what the tiger tank and the panther tank the tiger and the panther yeah those those were their two like like planned mass production tanks uh Guderian makes a big deal about um that that he wants them to focus on just mass producing those tanks he also wants them to keep the Panzer IV because that's the only like really combat effective thing that they have at the moment, uh, and he, he thinks that they can't stop production on that. Right, because when you change when you stop production, you uh, you have to like redo all the machines and like tra retrain everybody, and it's right. just a whole mess to like to right. to just you can't just stop production. So he he wanted them to do these these three tanks: uh, Panzer IV, Panther, and Tiger. Um, which I mean, ultimately, like he actually kind of failed in in getting this done, uh, which he doesn't actually really talk about. Again, I think he's a little bit self congratulatory, covering up his own flaws. Oh, well, you know, because this 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 never happened. Uh, I mean, they did start producing the Panther and the Tiger, and they started getting more of them done. But they also were still building like the old assault gun, the Stug three. Uh, they were still building like these little Hetzer things, which were supposed to go to the infantry. These little tank destroyers. They were still building all of these wild designs, um, you know, just different variants on older tanks. I mean, they had uh -huh. like they had like eight different variations on the Panzer IV, none of which had full parts compatibility. Oh yeah, I can see uh, why that would be a problem. And like he complains about this, but at the end of the war, they're still building them. So he apparently never fixed the problems. Uh, he did get production to increase somewhat, but honestly, I think he's stealing credit from Albert Speer there who really did the work of of finally getting around to doing a, a total war mobilization of all their all their industry uh it seems like he didn't really get much done there okay but he did get the tigers into production yeah i mean they were working on them before he got there honestly like uh but like why all right well what is what is the improvement of the tiger tank over the the fours well so the panzer the, I mean, the tiger is like a real combat tank like it's it's not for no reason that they were considered the most feared vehicle in the european and in the african theaters uh much heavier armor vastly more powerful gun because the panzer fours at the time had the short barreled 75 mm -hmm. uh they later replaced them with the longer barreled 75 millimeter which was better at at killing enemy tanks but when the Tiger came out, it had a, a long-barreled 88-millimeter gun, you know, the famous, like, yeah, 88, 88 mil, uh, which could just completely, it was like a can opener. I mean, anything that, that was up against it, that 88 could rip right through it. Um, and the, the most important thing about the Tiger, I think, and the thing that's that's often underestimated about it, you know, people say, oh, it's, it's over-engineered, like it was too complex, it broke down a lot. Well, it did break down a lot, but so did every other tank in production in World War II. 
Uh, the big advantage it had over the other heavy tanks was that it was fast. It was as fast as a medium tank. It was as, as fast as any other medium tank, like the T-34, the Panzer IV, the Sherman, and it was was far heavier. So the German engineering was successful when it came to this vehicle. A lot of people like to take the contrarian position and uh, kind of shit on the Tiger, but I think it was a fantastic tank. Well, Guderian's, uh, the way Guderian shits on the tiger as he says that it was uh it didn't have at least at first it didn't have secondary armament so it didn't have like a machine gun so if a, a tiger had isolated it wasn't really able to defend itself oh no, no no so he's talking about the the what he called the uh the panzerjäger tiger uh which was the the assault gun version of of the tiger built on the tiger chassis oh okay like in the way that the the sturmgeschutz three was was built on a panzer three chassis the the, the panzerjäger tiger was built on a tiger chassis well panzerjäger so ty- uh, tank hunter yeah it, that that's not an anti-tank gun exclusively no no that that refers to like basically just an assault gun the, the terms are often used interchangeably assault gun and tank hunter okay um in the in the german context so that was basically like a an even longer 88 millimeter gun on an even more heavily armored structure, but lacking the the turret meant to be employed in, in like frontal tank battles. Right. Okay. Um, and that one was stupid because they didn't even bother to put a machine gun on the thing. So uh, uh, he described like when they would have to engage infantry with it, he said it was like going you know going quail hunting with a cannon. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you could pop out of the turret and start taking pistol shots at somebody. Well, that's kind of what they had to do. <laughs> um, you know, they'd have like a like an MP38, you know, submachine gun in there and, and pop out of the, the turret or whatever. That, like, yeah, they didn't have another option. They didn't have a close-in defense weapon. I think he's just kind of like complaining about that because uh, I, I feel so, like that wasn't really that impactful on the battle. Okay. Um, but Kursk, so a big picture on Kursk is at the in late winter spring of 1943 the line between the russians and the germans or the soviets and germans was basically a straight line just running right down like from the baltic through belarus through ukraine yep and there was this one huge like salient like a little square where the russians had advanced a little bit further around the city of kursk and the germans everyone's looking at the the maps and everyone's like, well, uh, you know, easy thing to do here would be attack on both sides of the salient, cut off all the Russian forces in the salient, bag them, capture them, and uh, we get a, you know, we just capture a bunch of Soviet troops. It's a pretty easy victory, and then we can use that. Hitler, I guess, was thinking, well, we can, you know, use this politically because we'll have a big victory. Right. But the problem was that they spent months and months and months planning the offensive and the soviets like saw what was going on so Soviets are looking at the well, same is- the same map and they're like well you know if i were the germans i would attack here yeah i was going to say the same thing it's and- like if it's the obvious place to attack your enemy is going to anticipate you attacking there and you know the russians uh you know despite all of the criticisms of them for being lazy and incompetent and uh well, Everything else people say, the Russians often, aren't the one thing the Russians aren't lazy about is digging. They love digging. I was gonna say often the Soviets were actually quite energetic about doing like the wrong thing to do in any given situation. Laziness was not really their vice. Oh well. <laughs> but they do they love digging. Like they, they will dig in, they will dig trenches, they yeah. will dig uh they will, will bury their tanks basically. And they had, I, mean, I I actually read uh you know, and call me a nerd, you know, 
Uh, I've read the entire Soviet general staff study on on Kursk. Mm. It, was, it was quite fascinating. Nice. They they learned a lot about anti tank defense specifically. Um, they had they had this like layered in like echelon uh, uh, defensive system just in depth where where at every point of the advance. The German tanks were opening themselves up to more and more anti-tank fire. Right, and from different angles. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So it was like an autistic, they, they ge- really ge- geometric, like, uh, that's pretty hot. It was a very well-designed defense, and the Germans still inflicted a lot of damage on them, but, and, you know, it ended up in a stalemate, but strategically it was a huge loss for the Germans because they had just chewed up their, their mobile formations. Guderian, like, hated this. Uh, he was opposed, he says, to the idea from the start, uh, constantly warned them against it, said, we have to hold these these units back. We're not done reforming our tank forces yet. Like, you know, he's in this new position. He's trying to get the Panthers and the Tigers out. Right. We, we might as well wait off, hold off until we're ready to strike with, like, something really new. Right, right. High command is like, well, let's just get them out as fast as possible and just use them. Like, we need them at the front. Uh, Guderian is saying... Again, in keeping with his whole theory the whole time, is that the way to employ these things is is en masse uh, and and in like a concentrated operation. Um, and high command just wants to kind of like fritter them away on on little tactical battles. Uh, and he's saying hold hold the mobile forces back until we can get them enough of these new tanks that they now constitute a serious striking force. They don't want to do it. Um, and even like whereas Guderian wants to blame Hitler for a lot of stuff. In this case, he's really blaming the staff. I mean, he blames Hitler for listening to them, basically, because yeah. he says that Hitler also had serious misgivings about the plan and right. was only reluctantly persuaded to go. I feel like with it. I feel like Hitler would have, you know, by the time they actually launched the offensive, I think it was early July, and yeah. you would have said, "Okay, look, we've we've tipped our hand here. Like the the Russians are looking at the cards; they see exactly what we're going to do. Maybe we should just." But right. I guess I guess at that point probably so much had gone into like preparing you know whenever you're in charge of something you don't want to like call it off when a ton of time and and effort has gone into like preparing it well he has he has this like infuriating like repeated interaction with with the the other generals uh on the general staff he says uh where like they keep he keeps saying like no this is a bad idea and they keep saying like well like then where do you think we should attack this year and he's like just don't like, just don't attack this year. Like, why do we need to do that? That doesn't make sense. We don't have the ability to, to carry on a serious offensive. Like, you can't just, just throw your forces away in, like, these, these dribs and drabs, like, you know, this, this petty attempt to encircle a few Soviet divisions. That's not going to win us the war. Right. So Kursk ends up being uh, a... A draw, sort of, but... Tactical stalemate, uh, but a serious defeat. But a serious defeat for the Germans, because they just lost. I mean, the Soviets lost more tanks and more men, as usual, but... The Soviets had had, and the Germans didn't. ...had more, so... So it's 1943. uh, The real, like, Soviet... I mean, Guderian was on the Eastern Front for basically the remainder of the war, Correct. No, he was he was mostly in or not on the in, eastern front, but positions within the Reich. He his, was his, his attention. He was concerned was with the east. eastern yeah. front, yeah. yeah. Um, and in 1944, the you know a lot of a lot of Westerners actually don't know this, but it was 
the biggest like Soviet victory in 1944, I mean, probably the biggest victory of the war was Operation Bagration, yep. named after uh, the Napoleonic era Russian general. And that was the encirclement and f- total annihilation or near total annihilation of Army Group Center. Pretty much total. And I, that started, it, it started a few weeks after D-Day, I think. Uh, yep, it, started- it, was, it was planned basically in conjunction uh, that like they were going to prevent the Germans from shifting forces around those, those two operations were going to go into effect more or less simultaneously. And, you know, uh, once operation Bagration happened, it was a, you know, this is what Hitler was dealing with on you know, July 20th. When the July 20th plot happened, he was like at the, at the, the command and staff table, looking over the maps, like trying to salvage this like total disaster, uh, not even concerned really with the, with Normandy or far less concerned with Normandy because yeah. it was, it was like a, a, a gnat compared to, you know, a lion attacking you. <laughs> it's like, but, um, one of the funny things that Guderian mentions in, in Panzer Leader in these, these later years of the war is, uh, you know, we've been saying that Guderian was a, was a petty son of a bitch. And he, uh, one of the most remarkable anecdotes from the book I remember is he's talking about this one time where he and Hitler had an argument over where the main fighting line would be and the front line would be. And... Hitler insisted that the Hauptkampflinie, the main fighting line, be, I think it was a kilometer, it was very close, a kilometer away from the front line. And and which you can imagine would be good in a way. You have your main forces ready to repel an attack, but it's bad because it, it sacrifices maneuverability. And you can't react to a strong attack if if your your main fighting your main forces are very close to your front forces. As soon as you get hit, you can't adjust very I very think, easily. I think Guderian's bigger concern with that was if you're a kilometer back, you're still in range of the artillery preparation. Oh, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, you're, uh-huh. so you're you're still going to get smacked. And by the time you're able to sort your own your own shit out, the enemy's already going to have overrun the front line, and they're going to be on you. And so Guderian's position was, well, the Hauptkampflinie, the main fighting line, should be 10, 12 kilometers behind the main line. And Hitler said, no, 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 no. Anyway, battle happens. Does that, you know, it doesn't go so well. A few weeks or months later, Hitler brings, or this, this is brought up again, and Hitler insists, according to Guderian, I mean, you know, yeah, this his, is, according his... to Guderian, Hitler <laughs> insists that no... Uh, I told you to put the main fighting line 12 kilometers behind the front line. Well, according to Guderian, Hitler literally <laughs> says, like, what half-wit came up with that plan? And, and Guderian, Guderian in like, you the, did, mein Fuhrer. Guderian, in the greatest <laughs> moment of his life, you get this feeling, we're reading it, you're like, this is like his top, his peak moment of life was when he got to be like, well, call out the stenographer and let's see what the record says. And the stenographer comes out and reads back the transcript and it turns out that Guderian argued for that and Hitler argued for one kilometer behind and and Guderian just sitting there smugly like, yes, I was right, Hitler was wrong, the war be damned, I don't care if we win or lose, I was right and I'm fucking cool. What what I thought was funny too. <laughs> I think that's like this. the most revealing thing about his character. That's oh, like, yeah. It's yeah. like he was he, only in it for he the- He loved that. <laughs> He, that that moment, like of all the of all the things in the war, like defeating France, like defeating Poland, any of these great victories meant so much less to him than just getting getting one over getting, on his getting boss. to dunk on Hitler like one time. Um, and it's not even that he was like anti-Hitler per se, because like no, he, he's just. He, I mean, after the war, he was you know counter signaling and stuff, but like he wasn't a, not even as much as he could have though, frankly. 
I, yeah, I, I would agree with you on that. He's he was during the war. I, I think the fair way to characterize him is he was a, a professional soldier um, who was not. He wasn't political, like he wasn't like Sep Dietrich or something. Sure, but he also wasn't a cuck faggot. No, he was he was very petty about things that mattered to him, which were mostly in the realm of military autism and like how yeah. exactly do I want my forces to be arranged? That's the stuff he was petty about. Yeah, I can't identify. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the the other thing I thought was funny about that uh, is that. Manstein says in his book that this was actually a habit of Hitler's to call out the stenographer and read back the record whenever he thought someone was changing their opinion. So it, it kind of illuminates Guderian's thing even more is that Hitler had probably done exactly the same thing to him like a dozen times already. Yeah. But the one that he feels is the one that he brings. The one that he like. The one that he won. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, men never change. Yeah. <laughs> So, how did the uh, Guderian was, was was Inspector Panzer Troops at the end of the war? Yeah. So by the end of the war, like it's it's obviously pretty hopeless. Uh, Guderian recounts a lot of stuff about how he kept trying to get uh, Hitler and the High Command to like evacuate the Courland pocket and get more units for the, you know the defense of Germany. Right, and so that was um, that was all the. Um, the German troops trapped in the kind of the Baltic area, Courland is, is yeah, the, western, like little western Latvia, little islands off of like Lithuania, Latvia. No, no, not not the islands. It's it's like western Latvia. Okay, it's referred to as Courland. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Hitler, I mean, if going back to uh, the Sims book, this is a book that Warren and I talked about in episode two. Uh, Sims is a historian who wrote about um, uh, Hitler, a global biography. And Sims's analysis of Hitler was that Hitler wanted to keep the Corland pocket because it was essential for the training of U-boat crews yeah. and maintaining some control of the Baltic because Hitler's overall picture of the war was we need to just keep giving ground. If we have to keep giving ground on the Eastern Front, it's not the end of the world. What we really need is to produce a shit ton of U-boats in order to break the uh you know break the western allies and get get them to give up on the war so that germany has a free hand against russia and also cut off enough of their supplies so that a a, a ground offensive in the west could have a chance yeah and and so i mean guderian is tactically and operationally correct that even you want to you want to evacuate those troops in the core land because you can use them for the defense of the homeland the fatherland um he even mentions that admiral donuts was related or was was involved in that decision which which supports the idea that it was about U-boat security. Uh huh. Um, so I think he did understand why they did it, but he still thought it was imperative to get them back. I mean, anyways, at that at that stage of the war, like the tactical decisions weren't important. It's just sort of Guderian recounting like what exactly his role in things was. Um, most of the the interesting stuff is already kind of kind of done with. Um, you know, after you get through through France and the early Russian campaign, where you really see his ideas being put into practice in a big way for the first time, mm -hmm. um, and eventually getting adopted by like every other major military in the world. I know toward the he, end of the he was he was a genius on that level. It, I won't take that away from yeah. him. Toward toward the end of the war, uh, the Germans were talking about some 
I guess, ridiculous projects like the mouse tank or the the dirata tank oh yeah he's, he's and i don't know what i imagine guderian was against these but these were kind of fantastical ideas about building 88 ton tanks or something yeah he was just dunking on that he was saying and this went along with basically like land like uh like battleships on land with treads yeah. well the the with like eight sixty man the crews really or something. Ludicrous, like like the land ship one was never seriously. They never even built a mock up of that. The the mouse, which was like the hundred ton, I think one was actually seriously looked at, uh-huh. and that one was already ridiculously large. And he was just kind of dunking on, you know, when he got the because like it's just going to be a, a exposed air power. Well, was, when, it was the idea, right? When he got the inspector position, mainly his issue was that all these designers had come up with like a thousand different variants of everything, and he just wanted them to mass produce stuff that worked. Right. Um, and Very Russian of him. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, but also that was something that the Germans were already interested in, and basically what he was saying was that the lack of like a centralized uh, authority figure for tank production had just led to all these companies making stuff that they thought Hitler would think was cool. Oh, so you're telling me that indi- uh, individual or individual enterprise isn't necessarily the best thing in a wartime situation? Uh, indeed. Leads to a lot of uh, duplication of efforts and a lot of really retarded shit. Shocking and un-American. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he was just trying to get these people to all just build tigers and panthers and was, like, very, very opposed to all these other variants. But like I said, in the end, they kept producing all of this crap that didn't really help much. So he didn't really get his way. So uh, any other any last comments on Guderian at the at the end of the war? I want to talk about his uh, post-war career a little bit. Well, so at the end of the war, I mean, it, you know, it's quite interesting because I think that, that the purpose of this book and a lot of the uh, criticisms that I've leveled about him fudging the truth a bit are he's basically trying to mount an appeal to the Western allies to support what remained of the German cause as of like 1950, uh, trying to get them to side at least morally with the Germans and especially the Eastern Germans against, you know, the big bad uh, Bolshevik oppressor and casting things in terms of like Western Christian civilization uh, and, you know, the Asiatic horde of Bolshevism, again, like things that were kind of introduced by him into the discourse with this book and are now taken as, as sort of a given uh, uh, in our, our like canonical history of World War II. Are you saying he was wrong? Uh, he wasn't wrong, but he was, or at least not wrong in, in greater part, um, but he was he was addressing things in a way that he thought the West would uh, would understand and be amenable to. So, I mean, honestly, in a way, he's sort of the like the godfather of pro-German sentiment among uh, among Westerners about the war. Like he, he really presented the case for for what they did in in the best possible terms to achieve like a political rapprochement between the Germans and the West. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in that, in that regard, that's certainly admirable. I mean, I, I, I read this book before I was a national socialist and it, on a number of things over my eyes, I mentioned already the, like the, the way that 
Hitler dealt with the generals. Uh, it's clearly not the way that Stalin dealt with his generals. Yeah. And the other thing is just the broader perspective. So, you know, you're reading Guderian's memoir, uh, Panzerleiter, and he, you really see like from the uh, army's point of view, the German army's point of view, that the Russian war was far more important than the war. I mean, it was just dwarfed the war in France or the war with the Western allies in terms of manpower, in terms of like they were just in terms of how their their attention was directed. And, you know, you could criticize that by saying, well, you know, Hitler's attention might have been directed differently. But at least as far as like their manpower was concerned and uh, as in terms of like the most difficult enemy they were fighting was definitely the Russians. And it's sort of important. I think because you have this narrative in the West, I mean, we're talking about several different narratives here, and, and but you have this one narrative in the West that the neoliberals often put out, which is, uh, and they, they use it to dunk on Russia. So they'll say, well, uh, when the Russians celebrate Dien uh, Babidi, Victory Day, they'll say, well, these Russians are just act like the war was all about them and wasn't about the Western allies. And it's like, well, yeah, they do act like that, uh, when they have their big military parades and the whole cult of like uh, heroes of the Soviet Union and the victory over over national socialism or fascism as they call it, and the Russians, <laughs> the Russians I've always thought are not really wrong, in a way because, like they did, sacrifice millions and millions and millions of men. I mean the the moral, the moral effort required for the Soviet Union to beat the Germans in Russia was far greater than anything that any of the Western allies had to put forth. I mean, you read about America's influ- uh, involvement in World War II, and it's like, well, we had to buy victory bonds, and oh, we had to we had to sign oh, up yeah. for the war. Yeah, we, had, we had to, uh, you know, melt down our, our pie plates into aluminum. You know, for, yeah, yeah, actually, <laughs> speaking of which, I heard this story recently. Uh, it was about my, my, my grandfather, who was a little kid in Italy in World War II, and, and his brother, who's my, my great uncle. He had to like his his uh, aunt, who was you know well whatever he had, his aunt was collect they were collecting metal for the war effort. He had to give up his little toy soldiers and his toy trucks to make bullets for like the fascist war effort. Right. I mean, this is like the level they were at. Was like let's collect all collect all the stra- scrap metal. Every kid's got to pitch in his toy soldiers and his trucks. And like man. You know, <laughs> tell me, oh, I, ha- I had to, I, granddaddy went to World War II and, and whatever. It's like the, the, the level of involvement of the European countries, particularly Italy and Germany and Russia in World War II and the level of sacrifice is just incomprehensible to the American perspective. So that's one thing. Uh, like you were mentioning, Guderian... And the other generals, to less, you know, Guderian, probably primary among them, but to a lesser extent, uh, Manstein and uh, that other guy I mentioned, von Melanthin, who was a, a lower down officer, but wrote a very influential memoir. Uh, these guys kind of did the, I don't want to say rehabilitation, but they, they created this story of World War II where the Wehrmacht were the good guys and... It was just Hitler who was bad, and that's why Germany should be accepted by the West. And that's good and bad. It's bad because they denounce Hitler. But it is good in that 
I think me speaking personally, like I read this stuff and I think, well, you know, if what the extreme left is saying about the war, uh, the German effort in World War II is that, oh, they're all bad and they're all Nazis and that the actually I'm the extreme left, sorry, the Jewish, the uh, the Goldhagen thesis of like all Germans are guilty is preposterous. And you read these guys memoirs and you're like, OK, well, at least clearly not everybody was bad. I mean, clearly, if you're put in the, cho- in the situation of having to choose to fight for your country, uh, whether or not you agree with the political leadership, you have to fight for your country and you can't be blamed for that. Yeah. And I, I think that that definitely um, is true for me as well, and it's probably true for a lot of people, that your first interest in, uh, in, in the Third Reich, in, you know, in, in what was going on in Europe at that time, came through some fascination with military affairs. It's a very common thing. Um, and, and, and that fascination, like, again, reading this book, you realize how much of what Guderian put out there became integrated with, with our understanding of history. So a lot of this fascination with the military affairs of, of National Socialist Germany was, was put out there. The ground was, was, was sown by Guderian, by Manstein, by a lot of these guys. And, and despite the fact that they, they, I think, unjustly blame Hitler for a lot of stuff and, and try to absolve themselves of blame, push it all in the SS, whatever. They've done a great service in, in their own way uh, to, to our understanding of, of the world. You know, and you can even find, I mean, it's funny, uh, Panzerlieder is still like sold at Barnes & Noble. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You can still find these books anywhere, really. It's uh, interesting to contrast this with books like... Um, uh, memoirs by uh, or books by DeGrell uh, or about DeGrell memoirs by Raymer which we talked about in our first episode well that wasn't a memoir it was a, it was a history book but he did write a memoir called uh, Verschwörung und Verrat um Hitler uh, Conspiracy and Treason uh, Against the Fuhrer or Against Hitler and these books are not translated or at least that one isn't uh, and they offer the real hardcore, like political defense of Hitler, and of the the total German war effort, which in a way is 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 more interesting. But even guys like Guderian and 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 Melanthin and, and Manstein like are still interesting, uh, insofar as they they provide a um, a counter narrative to the Jewish narrative. Yes. Yeah. They the, they focus on you know their honorable conduct in the war effort. You know, the, the fact that, that they did not think that they were doing anything wrong. They were not, you know, generally aware of, like, mass atrocities, like like is claimed. Whether or not those um, happened, right? Right. I mean, they just kind of say, hey, look, like, this wasn't part of my experience of the war. Like, here's how it was for me. Um, and that makes them, them very defensible from a moral point of view. Uh, is, is it cucking a little bit? Yeah, it is. Uh, but it kept their side of things in the frame uh, of, of modern history. Yeah. So, uh, good books to read. I, I certainly enjoyed uh, Guderian's book. And I just want to f- uh, end off on, on a note here. So, in this podcast, you know, we talk about historical stuff, uh, cultural stuff. But a key thing is in this movement is to not get obsessed with secondary things we there's a tendency to 
focus on uh, athleticism or diets or something as if these are political acts themselves. This podcast, we are not interested in forming a a alternative to political activity. This is to supplement your political activity. So you should listen to these these ideas, read these books, talk about this stuff. But at the same time, understand that reading these books in itself is not a, a political action. And I think that's very important. Uh, I know a lot of people will uh, present, whether it be you know like athletics or nutrition or whatever lifestyle choices as alternatives to political action. They will also present intellectual stuff as alternatives to political action. This is not an alternative to political action. You should read about these guys to understand the past and to increase your cultural knowledge and awareness to make yourself a person who can engage in politics and who can be respected by others as a, a thinker and uh, somebody who understands things about the world. But it is not in itself a political act. It's what you do with this knowledge that is important. So thank you, Hans, for coming on the show. I, I want to do a, another... Oh, we'll have to do some future episodes because this is great. This is something that a lot of people don't talk about, which is funny because we talk about these in private conversations all the time. I mean, it's not just, and like I said at the beginning, it's not just us. It's like everybody, <laughs> every white male in America talks about this stuff. And it's uh, it's not something that's talked about in podcasts. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm unaware, but I don't think anybody really talks about the the military aspects of, of world war ii and it, it's just an interesting topic in its own right and probably not from our point of view no they don't yeah. right <laughs> no they're, they're certainly you can find stuff on youtube about like the the uh, details of of the campaigns and stuff like that which is interesting but uh i think it's it's uh especially valuable to mix it in with the the actual political uh, knowledge because that some of the points that we've mentioned like about commissars being heavily jewish uh about the the jewish narrative versus uh guderian and the general's narrative or the the liberal narrative or 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 the the actual national socialist narrative that like uh, raymer would present it's interesting and it's important to understand the differences so thank you for coming on the show and uh, hope we'll we'll do a follow up maybe with some we'll talk about Manstein or someone else in the yeah. future. Thank you for having me. I'd be happy to come back. Yeah.